0: ever wonder about all the different ways of dying you know violently and wonder like what would be the most horrible way to die try not to think about dying too much well for me the worst way would be for a bunch of zombies to get around me and start biting and eating me alive see first they would tear off my clothes Hey,
1: somebody get some light over here. Mansfield's taking off his clothes again. I don't know why I went to a Brooklyn accent. Oh, yeah.
0: Chest hair out. It's fucking <laughs> Dead Boy Summer, y'all. And it's getting hot, hot, hot over here. Dead Boy Summer. Summer.
1: Second episode of Dead Boy Summer as we roll on with our zombie flicks, kind of centered around Romero. But today is our companion movie, The Return of the Living Dead, which we'll get to in a bit. But for those of you who are just joining us, you know, 85 plus episodes later, welcome to Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the cowardly co host Derek, and my movie Monster Boy co host Gorehound Aaron. Brains. <laughs> and he has no shirt on now in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. As the summer rolls on, we are consuming not only brains, but all kinds of horror. So Aaron, we will roll right into it because no guests this time around, just me and you. We will do our recommendations and for new listeners and returning listeners alike, our horror recommendation section is when Aaron and I recommend into each other. Other horror we've consumed lately, be it other movies, TV, books, comics, video games, etc. Aaron, what have you been getting into lately? That's spooky.
0: So not much. We have been quite fucking busy in the last few days, so I have not had a ton of time. But two things. So my wife Heather has been for whatever reason, I can't remember what she told me why, uh but she's been watching a lot of old musical movies. The one that she happened to be on the other night, I was like, "Oh fuck yes, I'm going to sit down and we're going to watch this together," which was Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. So that's good some choice. fucking fun shit.
2: It all began in this little shop.
3: Oh! Damn roses!
2: Where, strange as it seems, something extraordinary happens.
3: I'm afraid it isn't feeling very well today. no isn't
2: that What kind of a weirdo practice does that, seem? Little Shop of Horrors. A story about a boy. I've
0: given you sunlight. I've given you rain. Looks like you're not happy. Unless I open up. A- such a
3: weird place. A girl. You do make nice voice when you live on Row, Mr. Mushnick. Feed
2: me see And a plant. Feed me all night, long
3: How am I supposed to keep on feeding you? Whoa! Me now, I'm just a mean-
2: Rick Moranis.
3: Man's a total disgrace to the dental profession. Ellen Green. Excuse me.
2: Excuse me, what? Doctor. That's better. Vincent Gardinia, with special guest appearances by Steve Martin, John Candy, and Bill Murray. It's your professionalism that I respect. Little Shop of
0: Horrors. If you are a horror fan and you're like, oh, fuck musicals, musicals, dumb. You need to watch Little Shop of Horrors, A, because it is super well written and very tight and fast and 90 minutes. The music is just nothing but fucking bangers. The cast is great. It's Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, Steve Martin, bunch of fucking cameos from all kinds of people. Bill Murray, Christopher Guest, directed by Frank Oz. This is one of his first features. Frank Oz, obviously, from all of the Henson Muppet stuff. He's fucking voice of Miss Piggy, voice of Yoda, but for those who who aren't aware of the story, it is a geeky nerdy guy who works at a floral shop, and he is pining for the hot girl who works there with him, and he discovers a weird mutant alien plant on the way home one night, and decides, oh yeah, I'm gonna like, nurture this weird thing, and he starts feeding it, and it has to eat blood. As this monster gets bigger and bigger, of course it needs to eat more and more, and things just go from there so this movie is more f- <laughs> fucking treat yes
1: it's seymour it honestly uh transcends musicals because people either love or hate musicals or it's just not their thing but i feel like little shop of horrors is one of those musical movies that is for everybody yep i just think it's just that good yeah it's fucking awesome
0: so yeah that one we watched on hbo max uh it's been readily available in a bunch of different places for years so definitely check it out it's a good time second one is actually a brand new Movie as of when we're recording this, brand new. That is Alex Garland's new movie, Men. You're tormented. It
3: feels more like. haunted. Yeah. Something happened. My husband went upstairs to our balcony and let himself go. You must wonder why you drove him to it. Why I didn't drive him to it. I think it'd be true.
2: that if you'd given him the chance to apologize, he'd still be alive.
3: What? A man followed me out of the woods. He was stalking me. What makes you say that? I saw him twice. Twice?
2: I don't know if he saw you once.
3: Well, play a game. You hide, I'll see. You must feel an awful sense of guilt. Stay away from me. What are you?
1: i keep seeing this pop up in trailers and shit and it looks interesting there's
0: ads for it
1: all over the fucking yeah. place i keep seeing ads constantly i see it all over our movie twitter i i've seen it even on facebook on youtube etc how was it because it looks very interesting
0: Um, I don't know how I feel about it. It is interesting. I think this is a very interesting exercise, but I would not necessarily say go into this movie expecting the usual Alex Garland movie. In a lot of ways, it has some of the same themes he's been working with over the last few years. In other ways, there is no plot to this movie. There's no real structure. This is definitely more of a mood piece with a lot of ideas ideas in there, but I don't feel like there is necessarily any kind of grand statement being made in the movie. So, of course, this is is Alex Garland, writer of 28 Days Later and Sunshine, uh, writer-director of Ex Machina, Annihilation. So, this is his newest effort, starring Jesse Buckley, who is an awesome actress. She's one of my favorite people working right now. She was in uh, the most recent season of the Fargo show. She was in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and The Lost Daughter, which is on Netflix right now, was just nominated for a bunch of Oscars. So she has been pretty fucking awesome. Rory Kinnear is the other star of this movie. Uh, Most people would know him kind of as the side agent guy in all the new James Bond movies with Daniel Craig. He's been in lots of British TV stuff, most notably the pig fucking episode of Black Mirror. So, first off, this is a movie that 100% screams, we made this during COVID. And what I mean is, the movie is essentially a cast of Four people, one of whom is really only ever seen via FaceTime on a phone. One character is really only seen in flashbacks. And then Rory Kinnear is essentially playing like nine different characters. So the movie is about a woman who is in the middle of grieving. She goes out to the country to spend a couple of weeks at a British manor house in the country. So what time
1: period does this movie take place? Because the trailer makes it kind of timeless. It's modern. Okay, I I think
0: it's more just the fact that it is rural England and she's in a manor house estate She's kind of wearing a dress that can be kind of old-timey looking. The movie is set modern day. It's just set in a rural community in England. (sighs) Roy Kinnear, like I mentioned, he plays all the men in this town. And that's all I'm going to really say. That's evident from the trailer and from the marketing. I'm not going to explain any further like where that goes. And what happens, there is some pretty interesting wild shit in this movie that I can honestly say, like, I have never seen that before. It takes a while to get spooled up. Like I mentioned, this feels like a movie that was shot during COVID because it's shot in the middle of nowhere. Most of the movie is just Jessie Buckley by herself. Maybe Rory Kinnear is in the scene with her occasionally. So it's very much a, like, no-cast Very little crew, very stripped down kind of movie. This seems like the kind of thing where he wanted to do this exercise, and this is clearly like an acting performance showcase kind of thing that is working through some ideas, but there, like I said, is no clear plot. There is no overarching explanation of what is happening. You are not going to leave with any kind of real resolution. Just know that going in. This is an A24 movie. So, like, that should tell you enough. Right there, this is gonna be kind of artsy fartsy. I found it to be incredibly fucking engaging, I will say. This was kind of right up my alley of bullshit artsy fartsy acting showcase, technical showcase kind of movie. But don't go in expecting this to be like some kind of thriller, don't expect any kind of clear cut message to this movie. But it's fascinating. You know, the, the obvious themes that you see in all the marketing are, you know, G aren't Men in general pretty awful but it also kind of looks at relationships and how society and fucking humanity and civilization has formed and there's like all these bigger fucking ideas in there and it mixes all of that with history christianity paganism you know modern society british society it's a lot at one time and i've listened to some interviews with alex garland since this movie came out and even he has said i'm working through some stuff in this movie i'm purposely leaving it vague and open for audiences to kind of take what they will from it This isn't one of those where he clearly had a message in mind and he is waiting for people to kind of figure it out. But this doesn't feel like the kind of movie where he is just bullshitting and any interpretation is a correct interpretation. You know, I think this movie is dealing with some very specific things and it's just not holding your hand about it, but it's also not so obtuse, right. per se. I, it's hard for me to talk about it, even without going into spoilers. But it's very much about all men want is to be loved by women, but all they can do to earn that is do awful things and be patriarchal and condescending. It's those kinds of themes. But there's definitely a lot more going on than just, gee, aren't men like the worst? It's interesting, but it's definitely, like I said, it is an experiment. It is a exercise. It is a, hey, I think I have something. Thing that can be weird. Give me $2 million. Let me rent this giant manor out in the middle of the countryside and we'll keep the cast and crew to a bare minimum and I'll turn out a movie.
1: It sounds like a movie that was <laughs> conceived by like, what if you took Mother by Aaron Osphy and it had sex with Lars von Trier?
0: Yes, <laughs> to a degree. I find that this movie is much more interesting than Mother because Mother is very smug mother is very up its own ass on how clever it is don't you get it this is the bible we're just playing out the Bible but in this giant weird house with these characters right? The movie is very self-satisfied. This movie clearly is doing shit but it doesn't know where it's going it has no idea like what it's really trying to say and it's just stumbling through all of these fucking weird insane ideas and there's lots of things there that you can take from it but it is, the movie is essentially I don't know what I'm trying to say say. That's how it kind of feels, but I find that to be more engaging than like, get it? He's Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit. Get it? She's the original woman creation. Like, yeah. Uh, it's, the house is the Garden of Eden. Like, we get it, Darren. We get it. Which, yeah.
1: I was happy to hear that Brendan Fraser is going to be starring in his next movie, but I'm also just kind of like, God, I hope it's not up its own ass.
0: Yeah. Like I mentioned in Discord recently, like I'm, I'm past the point of... I I will still watch his movies out of curiosity, but not with any kind of excitement anymore. I'm just kind of like, okay, what is he going to do next? You know, Noah was such a fucking insane movie that Heather and I both fucking hated. And then we went and saw Mother, and same thing. Everybody was going on about how much that movie was so groundbreaking and so revelatory, and Heather and I were just like, it's the Bible. I don't get why people lose their minds (laughs) over this. It's so clearly from the very beginning. I'm just doing the Bible like, in this house. Sure. Maybe everybody else didn't grow up in fucking Bible Belt like we did, that it took them to the very end of the movie to realize what was happening. I don't fucking know, but it was not that clever. I still think we should do Black Swan. Oh, yeah. But we should yeah, also yeah.
1: absolutely do Perfect Blue and maybe do like a two parter because I
0: feel like you ripped off Perfect Blue a lot. Yeah. It would be interesting to like do one at the beginning of a month and do another at the end of a month. Yeah. Because
1: the more I learn about him, the more he seems like a prick, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Yeah. I could totally see him ripping off perfect blue and taking all the credit from black swan yeah not that black swan is a bad movie it's a good movie but yeah
0: has he had good movies abso fucking but is he as clever as he thinks he is no he's a poor man stanley kubrick oh totally totally i don't think all of it works i don't think it is a movie that is super rewatchable can I say that I like the movie? Not necessarily. I didn't dislike the movie either. And this seems like the kind of movie that people are either going to be like very, very hot or cold about. I don't know how I feel about it yet. Like I said, I was very engaged the entire time. I'm interested to maybe watch it again and kind of dig into it a little bit further and have some discussions with people. But I don't know that this is one that I'm going to like go back to regularly like I do with Annihilation or Ex Machina, for instance. Like those two movies are are very rewatchable to me.
1: Yeah, they feel like more complete movies, whereas this... This feels like an exercise.
0: Yeah, this feels like a lighthouse situation, maybe. To a degree, yeah. I mean, I like The Lighthouse, and that is certainly a more complete movie, but that also felt like, oh, this is a technical exercise for Robert Eggers. This is a warm-up to something bigger. This is a showcase of his skills as a director in terms of pulling those performances from his actors actors and doing showy stuff with the camera, working with very, you know, obscure dialogue again. Like, this movie kind of feels the same way in a lot of ways. Just like the first two movies that he directed, I mean, there's stuff in this that certainly, again, I've never seen before and I don't think I'll ever see again. Like, just complete. okay, that's fucking interesting. You know, I can genuinely say, like, that is fucking new to me. What is different in, in an interesting way is this movie is not centered around technology technology whatsoever. This is not a cloning movie, despite the fact that, like, yes, he plays all these multiple characters. There is no technology really present in this one, as opposed to his last last movies that he directed, but several, several movies that he has written, and even his novels, and hell, he wrote some video games that are very tech-centric video games. So, this one is different in that sense, but that may also be a kind of expression of working during COVID and wanting to kind of disconnect connect and get back to nature in a weird way so I don't know what all there is to that necessarily but I I thought the movie was at least interesting now is this worth rushing out to see in a theater I would say maybe not on one hand I want these kinds of movies to do well at the box office to show like yes we need to put money into these kinds of movies and take these kinds of risks but on the other hand I don't want anybody to be like, yo, I spent $20 on this for me and a friend to go. We had to drive an hour round trip and get a sitter. Fuck you. This movie's awful. (laughs) So I don't know. This might be a good streaming horror
1: movie then. I mean, obviously, without giving away spoilers, but just from you describing it, it sounds like him portraying all the men in a village is never actually like explained, and you can just interpret it whatever way you want to, which is part of what you were saying with it being open-ended, I feel like.
0: That's as spoilery as I want to get with the conversation, but that's yeah. kind of on base. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's
1: watched even a few movies can probably kind of just get that from what you've said so far. So yeah,
0: Well I guess the spoiler aspect is what you said. We're like, it's never explained why it goes into some even weirder, more fucked up places. But again, none of it's really delved into fully.
1: Okay with that. I am okay with movies sometimes not explaining things like that. Yeah. We have so many
0: movies where they treat the audience like dumbasses. Yeah. Your hand is held the entire fucking time. Too. Yeah,
1: I, you know, even if this movie stumbles in some areas, like, I appreciate that, at least.
0: All right, and so the last thing I'll bring up is actually something that we are going to discuss together, and that is a comic book called Soul Plumber, which is written by the three guys from last podcast on the left. The artwork is done by John McCray, who has done a lot of Garth Ennis stuff. This series basically follows facsimiles of the three hosts of this podcast. It really does. In a very kind of demented, USA, hyper-religious, weird kind of existence where a new gotta have it religious televangelist product called a soul plunger is being sold and it will you know let you rip the evil out of people's bodies and turns out oh the demons that we think are causing all the strife in our life turns out those uh, soul plungers just open up a gateway to an alternate dimension and bring through a lot of other weird bullshit so that's kind of the gist of it I feel
1: like they were trying to do, uh, I forget the name of the alien creatures that feed off of negativity that maybe Scientology talks about. Phaetons. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they were doing that or the other thing. There's another one that they've talked about on last podcast I totally forget about. Archons. I feel like they were trying to subtly hint that they were act- the Archons were actually the villains in
0: this. Yeah, it's a little bit of that. There are definitely some Scientology vibes here. There's definitely all the like modern televangelists kind of vibes from this. There's definitely the, like, Illuminati giant religious organization conspiracy theory thing happening. But it also comments on our modern digital world of weird, culty bullshit and misinformation being spread via the internet and social media. It gets into, like, all kinds of weird arenas. So if you like that podcast, it's a little bit of everything in kind of a weird way. I feel like it's that podcast,
1: but unhinged and taken to a whole visual level where totally. they are trying to be gross on purpose as well. It is vile. I feel like every issue, at least one character, usually multiple characters, vomit, vomit yeah. a shit ton. <laughs> it's just gross and vile. And every panel, like either the background, the characters are both look greasy
0: and like vile. Yeah. And I love the artwork in it because everything yeah. just looks so scummy. It is. It's like a scummy cartoon
1: knowing it was mostly Henry and Marcus who, like, did the straight-up writing of the comic with Ben, kind of more serving uh, as, like, an idea person. And with that in mind, I know I've told you this off-air, Aaron, it really feels at times that Marcus especially is channeling his inner Garth Ennis, because I know Marcus, I think his favorite comic of all time is Preacher, and he's a huge Garth
0: Ennis fan. Yeah, and the guy who did the artwork is mostly known for doing Ennis artwork. So, yeah, yeah, that all tracks.
1: Honestly, like, if you're going to go lowbrow black comedy this is the way to do it because it never takes itself seriously that's the difference I feel like between Soul Plumber and anything Ennis writes a lot of what Ennis writes to me because I know there's a fuck ton of Ennis fans I get it he just doesn't click with me but for me
0: it's a little self serious it's a little self serious
1: whereas Soul Plumber, while it is critiquing a lot of stuff in like modern American society especially it's not taking itself seriously it's taking the piss out of everything without masturbating itself It's not self-gratifying, I guess, in any way.
0: For every moment that a character feels like, oh, yes, I have come to some great revelation and, you know, I have this very clear idea and vision of how things should be, it's never met with, oh, yes, they are absolutely correct. This is the truth. It's always a dog is farting in the background, you know, (laughs) like there's just always something like you said, just kind of underscore and take the piss out of whatever is being said at that moment. But it's very fun. And it's very gory, and it's very gross, and it goes to really big places, which I appreciate, because it starts very small, and by the end, there's literally fucking kaiju-level bullshit going on. I have very much enjoyed it, and I would love if they do a second arc of this story. Um, this is being put out under the DC Horror line, so maybe they come back and do a second part, maybe they do a spinoff thing that eventually kind of ties in, and they just kind of do an anthology thing thing. I would definitely like to see them come back and do something else with these characters and in this world.
1: I think it's in Z2 Comics. They're putting out the last comic book on the left, which is their own anthology comic book. Okay. I agree with you. I would like for them to return to Soul Plumber in some way as well. The two things about it to me as well is somehow, despite all this crazy shit that happens, and there's a lot of controversial subjects that they tackle, none of it feels problematic, surprisingly, as gross. Yeah. It fucked up as so much of the comic is again going back to the comparison with Garth Ennis. I think why I click more with Soul Plumber is they never go straight problematic for just the sake of shock, whereas I feel like Ennis yeah. does. This is an incredibly crude comic, yes, but it yeah. never
0: really feels offensive at least, not to me, unless you're <laughs> right? deeply
1: religious. But I mean, religion has done enough, I think, that we can be critical really of it. dunk yeah. on
0: them, yeah, cough, cough 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 giant story breaking right now about the entirety of the Southern Baptist Church TM covering up years and years and years of sexual abuse like uh, the Catholic Church that they've made fun of and criticized for the same exact yeah, bullshit and they, were, they were doing the same thing yeah give me a break we can be critical of these institutions
1: second thing is the resolution the way they defeat the big evil in this is actually in a really weird and odd way kind of endearing Yeah, it kind totally. of ends especially for the main character Edgar Wiggins I actually like felt happy for him this is the crazy thing as critical as they are of religion it was this weird kind of flip of the trope of a religious fanatic character Edgar Wiggins is a religious fanatic but he actually is still like what you think Christians should be like he's very understanding of other people's views even if he doesn't agree with them yeah he's never judgmental he's never judgmental the
0: characters especially if they give him shit he's always just like yeah look Iris respect your opinions. Peace be with you. <laughs> yeah, you
1: are you are also God's creature, so I love yeah. you too. Like religious fanatics were like this. The world would honestly be a better place even if they're misguided still. And that's kind of the wild thing is like I think if you really think about it, it is kind of a good portrayal of like a religious character cuz he really does just want to do the best thing in every situation. It's just he finds himself in these ridiculously absurd situations and he himself is also a caricature absurdity of how much he actually loves loving god.
0: Yeah. This book also has an incredible use of dogs at the end and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that book was great. It was released as six individual issues that you could probably still find floating around comic shops right now. There is a trade that is supposed to be coming out later this fall. So it is readily available. Definitely check it out. Uh once again, it is called Soul Plumber and that is from DC Comics. Yeah, good pick. Derek, what have you got, sir?
1: So, oddly enough, I have only movies. I mean, besides Soul Plumber, which we both shared. Hell yeah. And for the first time in a while, I have three movies now. That might be the first time in our... It might be the most movies you've ever done. Or movies I've covered in one episode, right? So let's start with one that I watched that was kind of out of left field. Managing our Twitter with how much horror we now follow, because we're also a horror movie podcast. It's not nice because i'll see like stills from movies that are like underrated or like being reevaluated in real time i'll be like cool Let me look that up. Oh, it's on Tubi for free right now, or it's only like $2 or $3 on YouTube to rent. Okay, I'll put it on and watch it. That's the story for all three of these movies I covered. So let's start with the oldest one, 1972s, directed by Steven Spielberg, by the way, Something Evil, a TV movie. Yes. Yeah, directed by like brand new Steven
0: Spielberg. Like, had he only done Duel at this point? This was absolutely a you snuck onto the back lot and convince somebody that you should direct this TV movie kind of thing back when you could do that back when that was just fucking possible for you to be like 20 years old and bust your way into a back lot and be like hey i should do this
1: yeah because just kind of glancing through wikipedia so this isn't definite i I, you know i could be mistaken but just glancing it i think the only movie he had directed before this was duel which had been reevaluated a lot Also a tv
0: movie but that was
1: also a tv movie and then he had just done a bunch of like random episodes for shows so this might have been his second movie ever weirdly enough it's horror movie about possessions and demons yep. and it is wild so i would say go ahead and rent this one because it is readily available someone uploaded the whole thing on youtube but that version of it it's probably bullshit quality it's very imagined. bad quality so i went ahead and rented it and it was way better visual and audio i don't know if this has ever had a re-release the quality still felt worse than like what we're used to yeah there
0: might be some kind of weird rights issues holding it up from being released again like if there's some you know music or something in there that they yeah. can't clear.
1: Then again, like I was able to just rent it online for like two or three bucks. But yeah, so it was, it was originally came out on January 21st, 1972, on CBS. It follows a married couple um, with two children and the father like works in the entertainment industry he actually like casts for commercials he i think works out in new york so he's commuting a lot and they decide they want to move out into a farmhouse in pennsylvania because his wife just falls in love with it when they're visiting it after they move in all this weird shit starts happening like the person who was taking care of the farmhouse before they arrived stays on to work the field he's constantly like every morning cutting a chicken's head off and spraying its blood around the grass in like some kind of ritual he makes odd Comments about seals and symbols being painted on the farmhouse door, and like how that's to ward off spirits. perfect yeah randomly enough all the characters who live out in the country are just like oh yeah devils are real spirits are real oh yeah you know we had to get rid of it down at our farmhouse so it was this oh I guess everyone in the country believes planes are god magic allowing us to fly through the air and country bumpkins like are painting sigils like they're hedge witches to ward off devils it was kind of an odd story setup again you know Steven Spielberg really is not afraid to like put kids in precarious situations nope not at all Uh, you even this early in his career like the children are kind of terrorized especially the son and interesting enough the son Johnny Whitaker who at the time was like a famous child star like in the early 70s and that was the big thing about this movie I feel like in a lot of the marketing they were talking about how he was the son in this Sandy Dennis and Darren McGavin are probably the two other big names it's an interesting movie in that it's spooky but it's very digestible because A it's in the 70s B it's a TV movie the budget was probably just nothing. Yeah. It was a lot of camera effects and Spielberg having to like use more auditory cues to signal like when a demon is present, like the wind blowing or noises. And like the thing that was kind of creepy was when the mom would be woken up in the middle of the night and she'd hear like this child screeching that almost sounds a little inhuman almost like a cat screeching and there's actually an interesting twist granted like you can see the twist coming a thousand miles away but you know it is interesting that in a movie this early in a TV film before even the exorcist involving children and like what happens to them with demonic activity if there's anything I would say that does not age well at all in this movie it's kind of the treatment of women just the casual misogyny of the nuclear family the way it's written it's a lot of the husband being like Like, oh, wife, you're just gullible. Like, sure. You know, oh, make me dinner, honey. Like, you know, make sure that you get that ready for me, honey, sweetie. You don't know what you're talking about. To one point, like, where the wife herself says, oh, my husband thinks I'm gullible he's probably right, or she says something along the lines of that to another character. It's just like, yeah, this is leave it to Beaver, like, casual misogyny, 1950s nuclear family, okay. But it's still an interesting time capsule movie, especially it being early Steven Spielberg. I feel like he really was cutting his chops with this movie, getting around a lot of stuff, trying to figure things out. It's very raw. It's not necessarily, like, the best horror movie. It can drag a little bit, but I do appreciate how a matter of a fact it is in many situations. Sure. There's these great montages with the mother, her doing arts and crafts, like making these necklaces with all the sigils. It kind of almost has just like moments that are like transitions even that are almost throwaway explanatory pieces of dialogue from characters. And you just kind of find out the story of the land itself being possibly evil. It's a concept that comes back later in The Shining. You know how some places are just different. It introduces that idea. Yeah, it's an interesting piece of work by Steven Spielberg way back in the day. Have you seen this, Aaron?
0: Years ago, years and years ago, I was going on a let me dig up every last Spielberg thing that I have not seen trip. And that was one of the ones that I I think I literally did just watch it on YouTube at the time. And it was VHS quality, so it wasn't great. I don't know what all is available now or how to find it now because I haven't had any real inkling to go back to it. I remember finding it interesting but not necessarily engaging in a way where i was like oh fuck i need to like own a copy of this or whatever
1: yeah so the two last things i'll mention about it it's only 73 minutes long yeah it's a tv movie it's it's really easy to watch second thing is the camera work is actually pretty damn good for how like amateurish this whole thing feels there were a lot of moments where and we've talked about this with peeping tom even like where the camera is almost voyeuristic where it's like you almost wonder if is this the demon watching in a way yeah Really just neat little thing if you have less than an hour and a half to kill and you want to watch something real quick. put on Something Evil, you could do a lot worse. It's an interesting watch. Moving on. The other two movies that I saw, either through Twitter or somewhere else, underappreciated horror movies. And these two are actually both 1980s slasher films. Ironically enough, both came out in 1982. Let's start with the first one that's a little more bug nuts. I watched 1982's Girls' Night Out, and night is spelled N-I-T-E. A.K.A. The Scare the Maker. The Scare Maker, yep.
2: The scavenger hunt was the biggest college weekend of the year. An event that would lead from parties to graveyards. It was just another way to kill time. Who is it? I like it, I like it. I've been
3: waiting for... Benson! Uh-huh. Uh-huh. cross me out! Oh. I'm uh, Teddy Ratliff, the captain of the basketball team. Hi, I'm Don Sorensen. And I couldn't care less.
2: Then one night they took old Dickie out into the woods. Dickie came back. His mind just kind of stayed out there. But something terrible happened. A dead man came home. Security, McVeigh. Dickie. Ow. Who the hell is this? Dickie Cavanaugh. Dickie Cavanaugh, you bastard. You're locked away. Am I McVeigh? Am I? The scaremaker Maker will take you places you've never been. Janie? He will watch the life run out of you.
3: Janie! 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 Oh my God!
2: His corpse is sickening cold. It's too late when your heart races and pounds and you feel your blood rushing through your veins. Never has terror been so real until you've
1: met The ScareMaker. Rated R
0: This came out in December nineteen eighty two. Arrow is actually putting this out. Either it just came out or it is about to come out, but Arrow Video is putting this out on Blu-ray.
1: Yeah, so interesting you bring it up because I think what turned me on in this movie was a random horror commentator on Twitter was either posting about this coming out from Arrow or having just dropped by Arrow. And they listed all these reasons as to why they think Girls Night Out is underrated. The one that caught my eye the most was the idea that the slasher has almost claw-like hands before Freddy Krueger was a thing. Yes. And that caught
0: my attention. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. (laughs) Cool. Did they tell you that the killer is literally a giant bear
1: mascot? Yes. And so that heightened it even more for me because I was like, oh, fuck, not only is that a thing, it's a fucking college basketball bear mascot that looks goofy as shit. I'm a thousand percent in. There was no way in hell you could make a bear mascot slasher like serious. So I was like, I want this movie to go like full blown blood rage with ridiculousness. In some respects, it does. In some respects, it's... It's, it feels a little dangerous it's mean-spirited especially towards women it treats everybody even the the men but like it treats everybody in this movie like a scumbag even like who's supposed to be like the main male character i guess First off, the thing that really did not, I did not like about this movie is it tries to, way too hard to like throw you up the trail of the identity of who the slasher is by sure. introducing you to like 50 different characters and you have no idea which one, who the focal characters are who are gonna be just yeah. the fodder. And I thought at first, I was like, oh fuck, this means there's, this is gonna have a high body count. We're gonna have some ridiculous kills. Not a high body count. The kills are pretty ho hum for a fucking bear mascot with a makeshift claw of knives. <laughs> The kills are actually not that creative or fun. Yeah. A lot of characters just dis- a fucking peer. Oh, I guess they weren't meant for anything then. There's one character and his nickname is called Maniac. He's introduced. You're thinking like, oh, that's the main guy. He kind of just disappears halfway through the movie. Then his best friend character, who you think is going to be like the second main lead, kind of becomes the main lead in the second half. But he doesn't ever feel like a protagonist because he's also kind of a dick the entire time because he's sure. openly cheating on his girlfriend throughout the entire movie movie and then there's another guy who like gets broken up with and he like calls his ex like a bitch for not getting back together with him and calls all the girls sluts in the sorority and then he's kind of like portrayed as like maybe this is the killer but he's way too obvious and of course he isn't the killer i'm not giving anything away so this movie like has a lot of interesting ideas never really does enough to execute on any of them it doesn't do enough to be like that shit fun like blood rage but it also doesn't do enough to be like crazy either i love 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 the first five minutes of this movie and i love the ending of this movie yeah the opener of this movie is good the opening five minutes of this movie is genuinely like some of the scariest shit i've seen legit the jump scare that happens at the end of it legit got me did not see coming and then the very end of this movie even if it is a little like blood rage ridiculous i did actually really enjoy like how it ends (laughs) but that's what you wanted right yeah but like all the stuff in the middle was either it was just very tropey and generic or it was just plot holes and plot points and characters being dropped left and right but like not killed off they're just abandoned yeah there's so many things happening and so many subplots built in you get kind of confused as to what the fuck is happening so would i recommend this movie i would recommend this movie for like slasher completists and gore hounds for sure capital h horror fans like the ones that are like digging for anything like if you haven't seen this give it a watch it's still fun enough the idea of the slasher itself is pretty creative and fun and again that opening sequence and the ending are pretty rad but everything else is like kind of a mess. I don't know if I would even call us underrated. I think it's a solid C plus 80 slasher. Like it, it does do a lot of stuff different than any other slasher, but there's just not enough meat there. I feel like, what, what do you think? I
0: mean, I agree with pretty much all that. This is one that I watched. Maybe three or four years ago, just trying to, like, find anything new, essentially. And it was fun enough, but not one that I could see myself going back to enough. I don't plan to buy the Arrow release, and it kind of cracks me up because we still get those like holy shit we've been waiting on this forever kind of releases from these boutique labels but then there's months where they're like hey we found this unearthed gem this classic from the 80s it is a must see for everybody and then it's the weirdest DEF tier movie you know so it's like okay like somebody likes this every movie is somebody's favorite movie but um, okay this is your big deal we're making a huge wringing of our hands kind of deal of this movie like okay whatever it's fun
1: I will say this if this is someone's favorite slasher I could see that I could actually see like there being people who like this is their favorite slasher movie I would respect that it is interesting enough I feel like and to that point I think the identity of the killer is actually pretty cool yeah I don't know if it was surprising or just I saw it coming but not the way you think it throws so many characters at you I just knew that all the characters it was throwing at me were not the slasher so like in that way I saw it coming yeah the second thing is what really kept me watching was Hal Albrook. Yeah, he plays he's the great. campus security. Actually, yeah, he's always good. He brings almost like a Tom Atkins and Night of the Creeps kind of energy. Not nearly as sarcastic as that, but like kind of the same thing of just knowing what the fuck is up and like trying to figure it out. He's just such a good actor; he can't help himself no matter what movie he's in. I will say there is one scene where I laughed out loud and not for the right reason. Where like when he's deducing who the killer is, and I'm going to say this as generally as I can without giving away the spoiler in case. I anyone actually wants to go watch girls line out he's sitting there looking at a picture of a character and literally takes a sharpie and just draws over their hair a different hairstyle <laughs> yeah and then he's just like oh my god yeah it's that person and i was just like are you fucking kidding me that was a blood rage ridiculous moment for me so, yeah, Girls' Night Out, not bad. It's uh, directed by Robert Dubell, who which, fuck if I know if they did anything else. But yeah, 1982 slasher film. Now, the, the last movie I want to bring up, and the reason why I'm bringing this up juxtaposed to that one, is I feel like this has sort of a similar setup and a lot of similar sort of themes, maybe, but I think this one executes... Pun intended, what it was trying to do better. And I think I would say that this is an underrated slasher, like, it does legit deserve more attention. I watched, again, 1982. This one specifically came out in November 1982. So, barely a month before Girls Line Out. This one is 1982's The House on Sorority Row, also known yes. as House of Evil in the United Kingdom. A certain kind of girl
2: joins Pi Theta Sorority, a girl who likes to party. And likes to get close to her friends. A girl whose extracurricular activities were more daring than most. A girl who could turn her fantasies into reality.
3: Don't you realize what we've done was an accident? It doesn't
2: matter. Then again, Pi Theta was different from other sororities because in this sorority, nothing is off limits as long as it's fun for the girls. So when it came time to say goodbye, they decided to make real sure that no one would ever forget the girls
1: in the house on Sorority Row. This was written and directed by Mark Rossman. This movie was unexpected in so many ways to me. I was expecting more of what I got out of Girls' Night Out of just super mean-spirited, tons of dick jokes and like aren't sorority girls horny, kind of yuck-yucks. Granted, a movie called House on Sorority Row is going to have a little bit of that, but it's mostly told from female perspectives, the five or six sorority girls themselves. The setup is interesting, the setup with the sorority house mother. I'm not going to say what happens with the house mother because I don't want to give away too much. The identity of the slasher, even though you can kind of see it coming, is genuinely interesting. The slasher themselves when they're actually revealed is fucking great. yeah that scene where like they come out of the background in the attic and I'll leave it at that is such a good horror moment. I'm shocked it's not talked about more. So just kind of to give you an idea, the premise is a group of sortie sisters, they're kicked out of their sortie house by the house mother but they want to stay an extra day or two to have their final like graduation sortie house party, so they decide they're going to do it, despite what the house mother does. The house mother gets pissed off, embarrasses one of the sortie girls in front of her boyfriend and the whole house. She talks all the other sortie girls into a prank on the house mother. The prank goes sideways. Some crazy shit happens with the house mother, and then it's them still going on with the party while also trying to cover up the results of what happens in this prank. One by one, they start getting killed off and pretty gruesome ways, too. Yeah. Unlike Girls Night Out, there's actually some pretty interesting kills setups in this. If there's one gripe I have about this movie, it does feel like it's just trying to imitate Friday the 13th. You only see a hand or its killer point of view. Yeah, it has that giallo-esque kind of feel to it. Yeah, but that's also what sets it apart. It's a lot more serious of a movie and even psychological than I was expecting it to be, especially towards the end when the characters winds up getting drugged and they also are hallucinating while they're like running through the Sordy house trying to get away from the killer. And some of the hallucinations they are having are pretty fucking wild and not at all all what I was expecting from a slasher movie like this the things it has to say about motherhood even and just women in general it could have gone further it it is surface level in some ways but I do think it has something to say unlike a lot of other slashers from this time period and the ending is great I'm almost kind of shocked they didn't try and turn this into a franchise or maybe they did and just never went anywhere not to my knowledge this is the only movie yeah I really do think it has a lot to say about revenge how that can go sideways it was a shockingly decent movie like i would say this is absolutely an underrated slasher movie much better than girls night out in my opinion i loved this i thought this was actually a great slasher movie i do think this is a firmly underrated movie
0: what about you aaron again agreed this is a great one mvd has this out on blue it's easy to get a hold of now it's on pretty much every streaming you can think of this was mildly remade. It was just called Sorority Row. It's not great. This is kind of one of those aughts remakes. Uh, well, everything I read about Sorority Row said it missed the point of this movie completely. I feel like it kind of does, but I also feel like it's not really making the same point either. Right. But it's it's fine this original one though is a lot of fun like you just said a second ago i'm I'm also shocked that this didn't spawn a ton of sequels because obviously every single year guess what new students coming in, so it seems ripe for the kind of thing where you're going to have multiple, multiple movies and have characters come back after a few yeah. iterations. Well, in the name House on Sorority
1: Row, like, how is that not a, like, a film franchise, like House on Sorority Row 4, yeah. this time the girls fight back or something like that? Yeah,
0: totally. I enjoy this one a lot, and this is definitely one that we will probably cover on the show eventually, yeah. so I, I could definitely see us doing this.
1: That was the other thing I was going to say, out of the three movies I named, this would be one. I would actually love to do a whole episode on and revisit down the line. Something evil, there just isn't enough there to really make a whole episode about that. And Girls Line Out, I mean, we could do an episode, but it might just be me bitching, I think. But I would say that this one stands above the bunch, especially as far as imitator movies go. It is one that I do think deserves to be relooked at. Hope some of y'all go back and give it a
0: watch and,
1: you know, let us know what you think.
0: Hell yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and jump into our companion movie to George Romero's 1968 Night of the Living Dead. This is continuing our Dead Boy Summer theme. So we kind of threw around a few ideas of what to pair up with that first one. Should we do a movie that kind of looks at the more traditional Afro-Haitian zombie roots? Should we do a movie that is maybe a more modern update of the same formula. We considered maybe the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead. And we kind of settled on this one because it directly kind of continues the real life story of where all of this bullshit with this franchise went. Obviously, next month, we're going to be covering Dawn of the Dead, which is Romero's second entry into his series of movies. But what a lot of people don't realize is that this movie is also, weirdly enough a sequel in kind of an official slash unofficial slash not really slash but legally yeah kind of way. So that was kind of the thought process here and obviously we're going to talk a little bit more about how this came to be in just a second. This movie is a fucking blast. This has been one of my favorites since high school. This is the punk rock zombie movie written and directed by Dan O'Bannon from 1985 the return of the living dead in the dark of the night something strange is going on
3: (laughs) the dead have risen
2: from the grave mister there's a hundred of those things out there
3: how many did you say a hundred
2: and now the question is, how do we get them back into the ground?
3: God damn chemicals! It's all over everything, stupid, stupid asshole! Right. Watch your tongue, boy, if you like this job! I like this job! Lord oh. Oh.
2: Lord oh. 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 Medical science is battling. And it's a supposed. Because technically, you're not alive. Why do you eat people?
3: Not people. Brains. How oh! do you kill something that's already dead?
2: Well, how do I don't want to know, Fred? I don't know. Let me think. Brains.
3: Brains. 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 I hit the brains. Oh! Get it Get it, Get it off. 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 Get
2: it off. The military is nervous. Crap! The police are confused.
3: Ah. Send more cops! It worked in the movie! Well, it ain't working now. Bring the movie line!
2: It's not a bad question, Bert. It's not a bad question, Bert. It's not a bad
1: question, Bert. The return. So right off top, before we get into, like, long-winded discussion about, like, how this also, like, sequel series spawned all of this, given, like, everything that happened with the rights of the living dead, my first question, and most important question, the one I've been wanting to ask you, Aaron, since I watched this movie, is this where the trope of brains, I want to eat brains, is this the movie, like, where it came from?
0: I thought you were actually about to ask me, do I want to party? <laughs> Yes Well, that too, yes. Uh, Yeah, this is actually where the fucking whole trope about zombies wanting brains came from, believe it or not. And like saying, we want
1: brains, we want to eat your brains.
0: Yep. As soon as I started watching
1: this and realizing what was happening, I'll ask you about like how Romero might have felt about this movie, but it didn't just feel like a movie that was like cashing in on The Living Dead, even though it might have been in some ways. It felt like it was also just as important to like film a zombie pop culture mythology as... Oh, in a lot of ways yeah
0: and this movie also goes out of its way to differentiate itself from the Romero movies a good bit so again we'll dig into a little bit of that later but yeah like this movie isn't just a cheap Well, I'll take it back. This movie kind of is a cheap cash-in on the whole thing, but I feel like this movie stands alone on its... It stands on its own enough that it kind of earns its reputation and it earns its place in the greater fandom and the horror legacy.
1: My pushback to that is, I would argue, yes, the concept, like maybe the original initial concept when they were like writing up this movie was like a cheap cash-in on that, but the movie is so fucking good and fun and well-written and genuinely hilarious, and even genuinely kind of creepy in, in some ways. Yeah. They did such a good job. It doesn't matter if it started off as, like, a cheap cash-in or not,
0: because, like, this yeah. movie is it's, a fucking blast. Like, yeah. I had so much fun watching this. Hell yeah, I'm glad you did, because this was one where, like, I've been wanting to watch this with you for a long fucking time, and this is one that I knew was going to be right up your alley.
1: Yeah, horror newbies, the gore is pretty much the main thing you need to worry about in this movie. Yeah, this movie is gory as shit. It's gory as shit, but it's, like, almost done comedically, again, in that 80s cheese way. It's a blast of a movie. Like, I think the creepiest moments are like the brief ideas of death and like what it means to be dead. Yes. And how does death feel like? That's actually genuinely creepy.
0: The idea of knowing that you're dying. Yeah. And how do you choose to like deal with that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And like what it feels like and all that. And then the second thing is also a lot of just what happens when bureaucratic incompetence happens. Like people can lose their lives even with the simplest carelessness and then just, oh, how do we address the problem? Eh, whatever. Fuck them. Yeah. Just burn it all down. And there's also those kind of fears. It almost feels like late stage Cold War. Yeah. A little bit in this movie. There's also just the themes of striking out against society with a lot of the main characters being literal punk rockers. Granted, they're like the dangers of D&D and Satanism version of punk rockers.
0: Yeah, this is like a very strange group of punkers, but I guess Louisville is a small place, and so everybody's got to kind of stick together, (laughs) right? Yeah,
1: and like these punks are like leaning way too into it, almost to the point where they're like almost all putting on an act for each other,
0: and they're all just leading each other's on. Yeah, well, they kind of are, and that's what's fun about it is these actors were Very, very much having to put on these characters. So, yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more later.
1: Yeah, there are things here and themes that you can explore with this movie that are deeper. But otherwise, I think it's, again, pun intended, a very digestible comedy horror movie. It's a fun movie in general. We haven't done a comedy horror where I laughed this much in a while, I feel like. So it was kind of a breath of fresh air. We've done a lot of heavy shit the last couple of months. And given how serious Night of the Living Dead is and like the way that ends and just how full of color this movie is, even though this movie also has kind of a fucking downer ending. It's very colorful and vibrant. So ridiculous. The satire and everything and the self-awareness when they're talking about Night of the Living Dead, the movie. It's not like what happens in that movie. movie like all that meta-ness to it is done really well and just goofy some of the fucking performances especially by the uh, mortician I think the mortician was my favorite character in this movie he was just a fucking blast throughout the entire thing yeah fucking a plus MVP of the movie for me but really everyone was putting in a hilarious performance but yeah horror newbies go watch return of
0: the living dead it's so fun yeah this one's a (laughs) fucking blast this one might be a little bit tricky to get a hold of i had to rent it on uh, amazon
1: again it was only like three bucks yeah and it was really good quality and everything
0: i'm sure you could probably pick up a very cheap blu-ray or dvd of this i know that the screen factory release that came out a couple of years ago that's kind of as of right now the definitive release that is out of print and i I'm fully expecting it to be on 4K in the near future, just knowing that a lot of those titles are getting snapped up from Scream Factory by Kino, and they are doing a lot of stuff that can sometimes get weird with these boutiques, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see a new release of this in the next year or so, but you could probably still pick up a basic blue of this pretty easily. Streaming-wise, same thing, Like for rights reasons, it kind of floats on and off right now, but is readily available like on iTunes to rent so it's one that you could get a hold of pretty easily so yeah let's dig in real quick first I want to kind of recap the whole entire weird issue with Night of the Living Dead one more time for those who might have missed out on that on the last episode I am genuinely curious how we got from that to this yeah so originally Romero and two of his college buddies Russell Striner and Joe Russo they formed their Own production company called the latent image they were making mostly like industrial videos and commercials and stuff like that they partnered with another production group and some other investors and formed a new company to make night of the living dead they filmed under a different title the company that they eventually got with to distribute the movie wanted to rename it Night of the Living Dead, and they forgot to leave the copyright bug on the title card. Oopsie daisy. <laughs> and so as soon as the movie premiered, it technically became public domain. So that caused a whole giant cascade of weird legal issues, money, and investors just, you know, kind of got fucked over. So immediately, everybody involved was kind kind of fighting around okay how do we recoup our losses so the whole discussion around sequels became a very heated thing who was owed what who is able to do what stuff at this point Romero and the other two guys they kind of all split and they didn't agree on how to handle sequels and whatnot. so what they kind of all amicably came to which the court stuff all the legal stuff was very messy and complicated but according to Joe Russo and from from what I've heard from Romero, they kind of both said, no, we were all still buds, it's all amicable, we were just trying to figure out the legal shit, and they kind of inflamed things and made it messy and bad. But the way it went down was Russo managed to secure the rights to the title, Living Dead. Gotcha, okay. While Romero was now free to make any sequels he wanted, so long as he didn't use that specific phrase in the title. Right. Which is why it is Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead and and Land of the Dead, and not Living Dead. So, One Word spawned two completely separate fucking franchises, because, of course, The Return of the Living Dead spun off and had its own four fucking sequel deal. So, that's kind of where this whole thing starts. After this happens in the late 70s, this was like years and years of court legal bullshit, right? So, Russo would publish a sequel novel to Night of the Living Dead in 1978 called Return of the Living Dead. And it was set a decade after the original movie, after the zombie outbreak from the original movie had already been quelled. It was about a radical Christian sect that kind of insists on ritualistically driving a spike through the heads of the deceased members of their faith and burning (laughs) the bodies to prevent future uprisings, right? That kind of becomes their whole new thing is we have to dispose of bodies in this manner to keep this from happening again. And they're insisting that this be the norm for everyone. And, of course, that's causing, like, weird political issues and everything. But during one of these funerals, there's a passenger bus that flips over on the edge of town. A bunch of people die. There are a bunch of survivors. But this whole church group rushes to the scene so that they can destroy all these corpses before the authorities arrive. Of course, they're unable to complete this mission. The zombie outbreak occurs again, dot, dot, dot. There's a disgruntled sheriff character who doesn't believe in all this mumbo-jumbo. There's an abusive and overzealous father with three daughters one of whom is pregnant. A group of these people take shelter in a nearby house. There's these two state troopers escorting two prisoners who arrive there. And then it becomes clear that the troopers are actually the convicts and Um, they broke out in all the chaos and the prisoners are actually the police that they're holding captive.
1: I'm guessing like this would have been a serious
0: movie. Oh, this was a very serious (laughs) thing. Yes, this was like a very over-serious kind of movie, right? So that was kind of the novel in a nutshell it's a weirdly sought after thing because it wasn't heavily printed you can find it online apparently and you can still buy weird bootleggy copies of it like I found an Amazon review where somebody was like I bought this fucking book and the text is really tiny and the picture was a full size book page but the print was like two inches across in the very center of the page (laughs) right so yeah this book is a really weird oddity this was kind of the base of the original screenplay, right? So Russo adapted his own book into a screenplay. He was working with Russell Striner, his previous collaborator on the original movie. Uh, A guy named Rudy Ricci also took a hand at the screenplay. They got with producer Tom Fox, and they tried for a couple of years to make this into a movie. At one point, it was set to be directed by Toby Hooper. That would have been interesting. Yeah, and it was supposed to be released in 3D, which was super fucking popular at the time. Jaws 3D, Amityville 3D, Friday the 13th Part 3, All those movies had come out and were pretty big hits.
1: It's wild that we had that weird three D craze in the late aughts. Oh, it keeps coming back. that had happened twenty years earlier. Like they keep
0: trying three D. And it had happened twenty years before that too. Three D was like something that had been happening since the fifties. Yeah. It's
1: like all those horror remakes from the the mid to late aughts of these movies, like of the movies from the eighties, also tried three D and failed fucking miserably at it. So it's it's, it's just
0: fascinating that they keep Trying to repeat that and make that a thing. Well, it hadn't gone anywhere since the aughts at this point. Nobody fucking goes to 3D movies anymore, right? Like, if you're that one person out there who attends 3D movies, still like good on you, but nobody else does. Yeah. All the Marvel movies are still released in 3D. Every time that you go to look at tickets for a Marvel movie, there's always one 3D theater, right? Obviously, the new Avatar movie is going to be 3D, yeah. and I'm sure that Disney, I guess 20th Century Studios, whatever Fox rebranded to, like they're going to be fucking pushing hard. Hard for like yo 3d see this in 3d again it's gonna happen again i love
1: again just a quick aside monopolization by disney i love how like all these people going back and forth what's more important to cinema avatar or like avengers end game like who generated the most cash when both entities are
0: now under disney so it doesn't fucking
1: matter to them that they're all rich anyway
0: yeah totally so anyway at some point toby hooper was like yo this is taking too long i've got other shit lined up Bye. So he bounced and went to go direct Life Force... And that film's writer, Dan Dan O'Bannon, was (laughs) brought on board to polish the return script, right? So Dan O'Bannon, this was his first movie that he directed. He had written John Carpenter's Dark Star. He is the original story writer for Alien before it was rewritten heavily. He wrote Blue Thunder. He wrote Dead and Buried, which we have covered on this podcast. He wrote Life Force and Invaders from Mars by Toby Hooper as well.
1: And we've talked about Dan Dan O'Bannon back on our Dead and Buried episode, I believe. He is an interesting guy because despite rewrites to Alien, he basically had his name like cemented forever by Alien. Yes. He is still credited on every single fucking Alien project. Yeah. yeah. Dark Star was interesting because apparently him and Carpenter like had a falling out because they were, they're both like crotchety old men. Yeah. Like even back when they were starting off, <laughs> they were crotchety young men. Young men, yeah. And it's just interesting how he pops up throughout, like, especially uh, through like horror scenes. Cinema, but I brought this up on Dead and Buried. I'll bring it up every time we talk about Dan O'Bannon. I have a weird affinity towards him because he had Crohn's disease. I don't know if Crohn's disease is the reason why he passed, but he had Crohn's disease and he states that the inspiration for the chest burster scene in Alien is his experiences with Crohn's disease. And I would absolutely a thousand percent agree with him during a Crohn's flare. It feels like there's a fucking alien in my guts wanting to like burst through and, and get out. Yep, I could see that. Yeah, but it's fucking wild that he directed wrote and also had cameo appearance in this movie twice actually like his voice and as like a minor character
0: yes and weirdly enough he was also angling to like play the role of Frank and I think the producers were just like no you already have way too much shit to do you don't need to like be in this movie as well
1: and honestly like I'm glad that they had James Karen play Frank
0: oh yeah James Karen's fucking great in this yeah the casting was perfect in this movie so anyway yeah after Toby Hooper departed this movie O'Bannon agrees to step up and direct the movie with the condition that he just completely fucking rewrite it because at this point and again, this is still based on Joe Russo's novel Return of the Living Dead. So Abandon comes in, completely fucking reworks the entire thing. And that's where the comedy comes in, that's where all the punk stuff comes in, that's where the entire tone of the thing shifts away from what it was gonna be.
1: I mean, this was a win for Abandon, because that was the right fucking call.
0: Yeah, and a lot of the decisions that he made were specifically to push the film further away from kind of of what he considered to be Romero's territory. So like we mentioned, this is kind of the first instance of zombies needing to eat brains for reasons that are explained in the movie. Because beforehand, zombies were just depicted as all-around flesh eaters. And that would still kind of continue to be the case in Romero's movies. This was also one of those things where it featured fast Zombies in air quotes, you know, I remember when running 20 yeah. days later came out, and then again, when the Dawn of the Dead remake happened, everybody was like, Oh, god, fast zombies, it's such a different thing. It's like, Have y'all never fucking seen Return of the Living Dead? They're yeah. running and sprinting through this entire fucking movie. What are you talking about?
1: I'll admit, I because I was a preteen when 28 days later came out, yeah, and I remember back then being, like, Oh my god, they run, yeah. this is it that freaky? And it's just like, Oh, I was such a simple, ignorant little
0: boy, <laughs> yeah, I was definitely that sp- that was like, um, actually <laughs> you like fucking Return nerd of the living Dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and funny enough, the producers pushed back on this aspect, but O'Bannon again, wanted to kind of zigzag and differentiate this movie a little bit more from the previous ones. Cause by this point too, Dawn had also come out and this movie came out the same year as day. Yeah. This movie came out before day. I take that back, but you know, either way, like he just wanted to differentiate this even further from the Romero stuff.
1: So a couple things for like what you've just said. The thing about the zombies because the zombies are very much treated almost as like comedic effect. But I do feel like the idea that they have personality.
0: Yes. That they can talk. They're smart. They are relatively smart and they can run. You see them making specific decisions like Tarman literally figures out a weird way to like pry the doors off the thing that Tina's hiding in. Calling more like cops and EMT workers. Yeah. Using a walkie talkie to call in backup. There's all kinds of things they do. One of them
1: Dressing like a cop, yeah, yeah, but also having them be able to run, like some of them even full sprint running, yeah, even to the point where like the one that's legless is moving pretty fucking fast on on their arms, still maintains them as a threat, a scary threat. So as goofy as they sound and they look and they are in some respects, they are still a horror movie threat. Making them be able to run like that. Second thing is with Obannon purposely like shifting away, giving Return its own voice, very different from Romero. Do you think it was more of, like, a business decision, or do you think there was a little bit of also kind of trying to respect
0: Romero in that sense? I mean, I think it was a little bit of both. I think it was also just him wanting to kind of creatively put his own stamp on things. I mean, it was a little bit of all of that, yeah.
1: There were a lot of tips of the hat to Night of the Living Dead, because, like, again, it's brought up by a couple characters. Oh, it's just like that movie Night of the Living Dead. Yes. Don't we kill them by, like, puncturing their brain? And then when that doesn't fucking work, they're like, yeah, but it worked at the the movies why isn't it working now it felt like a tip of the hat to Romero when they were making those jokes
0: yeah it's totally a purposely meta thing and again just kind of a way that they can say like yes those movies are their own thing and we're something completely different yeah it's a smart move to like be that self-aware on purpose so that way you can kind of fully separate yourself and not necessarily draw you know any kind of comparison I guess
1: do you know how Romero responded to this movie
0: I didn't really find out a whole lot, but everything I've kind of generally heard has always been like eh, yeah, he's still just pissed about the entire original situation with the original movie. But, you know, Return of the Living Dead, this movie that we're talking about, it was a big success. It made money. It was critically well-received. But none of the other movies in this series really were. Where Romero's movies, they were successful to varying degrees, but they have become much more cemented. And these are capital I important horror movies that have, you know, a message to them. So I guess depending on what is more important to you, did one franchise win over the other? I don't know. Romero always seemed like a very good-natured guy who was very well should happens, move on. I had never heard anything where he was explicitly like, oh, those bastards, you know, like I I haven't heard anything where he was like really sour about it.
1: Probably my opinion on this will change as we go through these movies, but it seems like at least Romero's first three or four movies in his series overall are better
0: quality in general to the return movies oh sure 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 that's what i'll we'll say in a second you're like the return is really the only decent one yeah i take it back i like the third one a lot but we'll, well get into that later
1: uh, like you know i've heard part two and three of return have their niche audiences they're not fully universally embraced in the way
0: that yeah a lot of romero's are it's really just the first movie yeah. And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about over the course of the next couple of months. It's interesting because there are a lot of people who 100% are like, Dawn is the best movie of those original three you know, it has the most to say it is the bigger movie. It's the more important movie, blah, blah, blah. Dawn is the more important one. There are certainly people that are like, well, night is obviously the one that's the most important because it broke all these barriers and set all these standards. And it was cutting edge for the time for lots of social reasons. That's the more important movie. And then there's people who are like, no, I recognize that those are all great movies. And I just personally like day because the gore is bananas, you know? So it's, (laughs) it's interesting, but I don't think, that there's anybody? I don't think anyone's wrong. I don't think okay. anybody's wrong there, but I also don't think that there's anybody who's like, you know, what? I really like Return of the Living Dead two better than all the rest of them. I really like Return of the Living Dead four colon Necropolis. That was a weird dumped on Sci Fi Channel movie. I like that one better than the other ones. No, there's nobody that's taking that standpoint
1: Uh, again if someone said i like return of the living dead more than all the romero movies i would respect that sure this movie again it's a totally different being a dead horse here this is a fucking fun thrill ride of a
0: movie yeah this is a fun movie this is a rewatchable movie this is one that you can put on at a halloween party and everybody have a blast this is one that's just again fun mindless like stress reliever throw on the romero movies are all Pretty fucking heavy. They're all uh, kind of a drag, you know, and they're meant to be that on purpose. They're bleak, yeah. But this movie is certainly not that. So that's something that I wish that the rest of the return movies kind of lived up to a little bit better but this first movie certainly hits that sweet point perfectly
1: from everything from like what happens on screen to the soundtrack which I might be jumping the gun but like the soundtrack is absurdly amazing I feel like it's putting on my shuffle because it has the cramps on it it has TSOL which I brought up a while back as a recommendation it has Rocky Erickson it has The Damned like it has all these fucking great punk rock death rock LA 80s music in it, and it's so good. Yeah, when all the zombies pop out of their graves and that song hits, was it party time? Yeah, fuck yes, this is punk rock as shit and scary.
0: Yeah, the soundtrack is fucking great. So yeah, I mean that's what I think is kind of interesting about this one is it is so singular, and there are so many movies that have tried to do this and just failed miserably. That this one just stands out so fucking hard. Of like all the zombie movies, again, this is the punk rock zombie movie the fact that it is so deeply kind of rooted in its origins to the original Night of the Living Dead is the reason why we picked this as the second episode to pair with it. So, I think it's a good breakup, at least tonally. You know, this is the only fun zombie movie that we're gonna do throughout the course of this summer, as far as actually having some humor and being kind of a blast. But, you know, this one certainly is one that I remember watching a fucking lot in high school. Just, it's it's a blast. So, like, let's shift
1: gears. Kind of going back to like one of the themes that this movie ex- actually does explore. And it's interesting, like, with the setup of most of the characters in this being punk rockers and like them dealing with zombies. In the backdrop of it, you have all these allusions to This chemical that was developed by the military or was manufactured by a chemical company for the military. This chemical is what causes the zombie outbreak to occur. I actually looked this up because I was like, they have to be riffing on something. And sure as shit, they're riffing directly on Agent Orange. That was used in the 60s and was developed in like the US and I think Canadian bases and, like, used during Vietnam and probably most definitely a war crime kind of thing. I, yeah. Of course, like, over the last several decades after Vietnam, all the after effects and being exposed to it have come up. Whereas in this movie, they kind of, like, take a satirical. They, they change the name of it, but the name is a direct, like, a, the name of the chemical in this movie is 245-trioxin. Yes, Trioxin. Agent Orange is called 245T-deoxin. So they're directly like poking fun at that. And then I, I love the explanation that one of the characters, get, I think it was Frank, where he's just like, oh, yeah, they sprayed weed with it in the 60s. <laughs> like, yeah, the U.S. government used it to spray weed.
0: Yeah. So for those that don't know, Agent Orange is a defoliant. So it was something that the military would drop across deep, heavy, heavy jungle to essentially just eat the fuck away at the jungle. It was often something that was aerosolized and set on fire and it would literally just melt away the fucking jungle to make it easier for people to get through. But it's the kind of thing that soaked into the soil and groundwater and would basically circulate back up into the rain. It caused all kinds of weird, fucked up problems.
1: Oh, and if you were directly exposed to it, congratulations. If you survive, you have tons of weird, fucked up medical conditions.
0: Yeah. And in the movie they joke that it was created by the darrow chemical company and in real life it was created by the dow chemical company oh i didn't catch that yeah so it's definitely definitely a complete riff on that whole thing so there's a
1: little bit like towards the end of the cold war and again the idea that you have these rebellious punk rockers as the victims of this chemical counterculturalists. yeah 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 exactly and then like i touched on like unchecked bureaucracy to the point where it's all these unintentional mistakes happen and how does the military respond well the military spoiler alert for the end of return of the living dead if you want to skip ahead a couple minutes or a couple seconds whatever the military responds by nuking four or five blocks of Of louisville area basically just like get rid of the chemical and they just kind of chalk it up as like oops we can't get the chemical it's been breached oh well burn it all down to hell with everyone who's in that vicinity they're fucked you know expendable but there's actually like nuggets of reality in that you think of all the experiments that the u.s government has done on minority groups through the years and all of that so like this movie not just as punk rock hilarity which it is you know there's a lot of that but i do think it still is saying something about like counterculture versus versus government spooks, basically, and, like, the military doing a lot of black ops crazy shit, and what's the result of that?
0: Well, like you said, this is also a very deep back-end end of the Cold War kind of movie as well. Yeah, like, they're missing this chemical,
1: and, like, yes, they're always on alert for it, but, like, it's been missing for years, and, like, the military hasn't really done that much, it sounds like, to, like, track it down.
0: Yeah, well, you also see the colonel in the movie who is just completely fucking blasé about everything. To the point of even, like, nuking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fuck it. Just get it out of the way so I can, like, get this paperwork off my desk, you know? Just completely over it. Burned out on the idea of the Cold War. Just, let's fucking get this shit over with so we can all go home, you know? Like, that's very much the attitude that the military takes in this movie.
1: Yeah, and I do like that the actor who played him also appeared in Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, baby!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I, I I also like that this is a low-key 4th of July movie. I missed that completely. Like, I know they reference it at some point in the movie. Yeah.
1: Forgot about it until, like, I was looking stuff up after watching.
0: Yeah. So, again, if we're going to have a movie that's a good satire of American culture, especially, again, Cold War, 1980s, Reagan America, this movie about counterculture kids essentially being consumed by their fucking forebears, right? Good satire going on right there. And, you know, weirdly enough, this episode that we're recording is going to come out right before 4th of July. So here you go, people. Here's a good one to put on in just a few days.
1: The other funny thing is it's a series of unfortunate mistakes that make the situation escalate worse and worse. And it's all these people, like, with good intentions, right? Yeah. The way it starts is one of the older workers in this chemical company is showing the young guy the ropes and he like you could tell he wants to be like a mentor
0: to this kid the kid is enthusiastic about this job yeah freddie is kind of one of the punk rock kids and you can tell like okay he's getting his job he's trying to get his shit together he has a good heart and all this older guy is trying to help him out you know and be the fun mentor yeah
1: yeah and like he's just like hey you want to see this chemical we have in our basement that like the army has misplaced and like so
0: Go ahead, go ahead.
1: <laughs> well, just like, I like the way that they get exposed. Freddie asks him, is it dangerous? He's like, yeah, it's dangerous. Well, do those canisters hold up? Buddy, yeah, they hold up They're like, industrial-grade steel, and he smacks it, and of course it
0: breaks open and exposes them. No, what them. he what he specifically says is, oh, yeah, these are, like, state-of-the-art, made by the American military. Military. Slaps yeah. one, and it just, like, poof, sprays out everywhere. And
1: again, there's a bunch of fucking commentary right there. I love how, like, that, what causes that, like, the full-on out outbreak to happen is skipping forward one of the bodies that they tried to kill that reanimated in their lab they bring it over to the mortician they decide everyone agrees we just need to burn it that's the way you get rid of this thing because all the body parts are still alive so they burn it and that goes up into the atmosphere well, kind of like Agent Orange like you said earlier Aaron like where it seeps into the soil or you know evaporate into the atmosphere and then rain uh, like basically yeah. chemical rain toxic rain and that's exactly what happens here the smoke from the burning body like mixes with the atmosphere rains on the graveyard, and all of a sudden, we have a full on outbreak of corpses. So, it's just all these good intentions leading to mistakes that just escalate more and more into like this whole full blown crisis.
0: Yep. And you know, to the point of again, this movie being kind of weirdly, you know, American satirical, it's set in fucking Louisville, Kentucky, kind of right smack in the middle of the country. It looks like LA, it feels like LA. Yes, yeah, they shot it in LA, obviously. I don't really know what. Louisville looks like well enough to be like cool. This is Louisville, but
1: yeah, to the point where I didn't realize it was in LA until towards the end,
0: like when what happens at the end happens. Yeah, it's showing you the title cards and everything of like the time of day and where things are. But once you actually kind of think about it for two seconds, like wait, Louisville? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just there's so many things about this movie
1: that are off kilter, but work so well. And like, I think the satire is a lot more intelligent than it might seem like on the surface. But then, like, the actual comedy that happens, there's shit that's all almost borderline slapstick that happens in this movie between, yeah. like, the purpose overacting of the Freddy character and the Frank character and Ernie, Bert. Those four guys, like, they all just seem like they're in a sitcom while a zombie outbreak is happening outside, and two of them are also in the process of becoming zombies through the whole
0: thing. And I think it's such an interesting balance, too, between those few characters there because, obviously, Frank and Frank, the entire fucking first 20 minutes of their story is just them like, uh, uh, <laughs> just coughing and just snotting and like hacking up their lungs. And the right? rest of the movie is them sweating and screaming and like, yeah. like
1: I'm dying, I'm a zombie.
0: Like- but then you throw fucking Clue Goolager in there as Bert, and he is just. straight-laced boss man that comes in and not hamming it up at all. Clue Gulager, being the fucking professional he is, is genuinely acting as if he is the distressed boss. And so it's this weird sense of verisimilitude that his performance brings to this entire situation where it is ridiculous, but it helps ground it enough that it makes the humor stand out even more in the best way. I love it. The four
1: of them... Them interacting Bert Frank Ernie and Freddie at points at of- was borderline even watching like a Mel Brooks comedy. The mannerisms, the way the like comedy was happening and the goof-em-ups that they like unintentionally would stumble into. It felt like almost a little bit Mel Brooks self-awareness. Yeah. Man, the first scene that really fucking made me laugh so hard was when they call Bert and they realize there's a reanimated corpse. They realize the gas has been released and like everything that was dead is reanimated. Like the dog that was cut in half that was going to be going yeah. to like the vet school was alive and like barking. So again,
0: this is this is like a medical supply warehouse. Yeah. So they have actual cadavers. Yep. They have anatomical sliced in half dogs that vets can use to study that are all preserved and everything. But of course, they all start coming back alive. So this half dog is wagging its tail and like yipping. And barking.
1: Yeah. yeah. Another little small detail, like when there's a camera shot, gets kind of zoomed back because they're like all yelling at each other. You see on the wall, there are these pin Corpses of butterflies, butterflies. Yeah, they're all, but fluttering. they're all they're all alive now and they're fluttering like as pinned against the wall. The first hearty like belly laugh for me was when uh, Bert arrives and he like chastises them for like releasing the gas, and he basically tells like Frank, "All right, Freddy, you open the door. Frank, here's a bat. You need to fix your problem that you started. You need to like bash that corpse's brain in." And then like Bert kind of stands off the side, just like Freddy, do it. Freddy opens it, and the corpse runs out, goes past Frank and tackles Bert when Bert was one trying to stay out of it altogether that made me laugh so fucking much because Bert was trying to avoid you could almost tell that Bert was expecting that to happen to Frank like even he didn't seem that confident in Frank being able to like take a bat to this corpse but it just ignores Frank completely and goes after Bert which in a way kind of foreshadows what's actually happening to Freddie and Frank being like directly exposed to the gas but like just that moment was so fucking funny to me
0: funny enough too that exact moment with the yellow corpse in the warehouse. So, our buddy Nowacki, who has been on the show a few times, he was on our House episode, he was on The Strangers, that sequence is actually something that he mentioned to us a while back on stuff that fucked you up as a kid. And he specifically was like, I don't know what fucking movie it was, I just remember a dead, naked, bald man who was on the floor and they like cut his head off with an axe. And I immediately... Immediately was like kind of right here it is and i like posted a gif of it in our discord thread where we were having this whole conversation and i was like it was a yellow corpse who was bald and naked and his head was pickaxed to the ground and then they cut it off with a hacksaw and he was like cool thanks for uh putting that gif on there and making me remember all these childhood nightmares i appreciate it all the parts
1: of the zombie are still alive yeah but like it's funny to watch that now because like yeah as a kid that might have fucked me up too but now it was like a fucking pratfall like comedy bit with a zombie like yeah it just made me laugh so much and there's so many moments of that with the zombies and everything else with the punk rockers and Freddie, and then them because it feels almost like Bert, Ernie, and Frank are like acting almost old school on purpose. Like they're out of like a 60s or 50s movie even. Yeah. And they are the older actors and they are the actors who like cut their teeth acting during those time periods. But then like the younger actors who play Freddie and the rest of the punks, they are like with the time or at least
0: they're trying to be. The older guys are trying to act really nonplussed. Yeah. Really calm about the situation. And meanwhile, yeah, the younger guy is just like, wait, what the fuck are y'all talking about? Yeah. <laughs> this is all wrong. All this is fucked up. Yeah. And the dynamic of those two
1: like worlds colliding is just hilarious.
0: Yeah. A couple more behind-the-scenes things on all that stuff. So, like I mentioned, the movie was filmed in downtown L.A. and Burbank. The shoot was pretty hellish from everything I've heard. All-night shoots. Yeah. Literally only the very few first scenes of the movie are set during any kind of daylight. A lot of the movie takes place in the rain, and we're not just talking... Oh, some rain, like torrential, no, torrential rain, downpour, yeah. mud everywhere. Their characters getting fully submerged in water. Yeah. In the mud. Yeah. So imagine having to do this for like weeks and also having to deal with constant resets and breaks and moving around and just everything else. Like it had to have been fucking miserable, right? Everybody that was involved except for Brian Peck, who played scuzz was like, yeah, it was pretty fucking awful. And he was like, dude, got splashed around the water. It was fucking great. Working with Dan O'Bannon was apparently a little bit weird. Again, he had never directed anything. He was a writer, and typically, writers turn in their fucking script and then they're done. They don't hang around on set. If a writer is on set, that is for a very specific reason, or they are a producer on the project as well, or they are working with the director at the director's insistence. Like, writers usually hand in their shit and leave, so they are not on set. So the fact that O'Bannon directed this, he was apparently not the most sociable and was kind of overly serious at times and would push back with people and argue with people and he argued with the main producer. He argued with Clue Gulager constantly. He argued with the effects team. He would get kind of prickly apparently.
1: But we might have said this on the Dead and Buried episode but Dan O'Bannon was notorious for kind of being a weird confrontational hard headed pain in the ass. Yeah. It sounds like with a lot of the projects he was involved in and that was also a Again, going back to him and Carpenter with Darkstar, that was the reason why they had a falling out because they are both hardheaded and set in their ways. And so I'm not surprised by that. I'm not surprised Dan O'Bannon was like that because even on other movie podcasts, when people brought him up, they've talked about he has done great things, but man, was he a pain in the ass
0: to work with. Yeah. Tony Gardner is involved in the effects. He had to take over basically all the special effects because the original guy who was in charge of all that, William Munns, got fired. So this guy had worked on Swamp Thing, Superstition, Beastmaster. He was originally hired to do all the makeup effects and just turned in subpar work on some behind the scenes stuff. I saw some of the stuff he turned in. It looked bad. It looked inexcusably like, what are you doing? Kind of bad.
1: So I'm guessing he had nothing to do with Tar Man or the Torso Zombie, because
0: those were actually decent effects. So Tar Man, I believe, was one of his.
1: Okay, that is a pretty good, goofy in the right way, but pretty
0: good costume, puppet, whatever effect. He turned in the original version of the Yellow Corpse, the Headless Yellow Corpse, and what he turned in literally was a weird bodysuit with built up shoulders where an actor could have their head hidden but it was so obvious no that's not gonna work and there were just weird peepholes. it looked like a t-shirt just stretched over like a mannequin it looked really fucking bad the first skeleton that pops out of the grave that we see like when the song immediately kicks in do you want a party right yeah. that skeleton was one of his- and everybody was like this is like a perfectly clean white skeleton, bro. Like, what is this? it been a grave for years. What are you doing? Yeah, like, you just basically wired up a perfectly clean skeleton with some goo-goo eyeballs and made its mouth open. This does not look like a rotting zombie that has been in the grave forever. What? Right? But, like, they just kind of had to shoot it and move on. Some of the initial zombie designs that he turned in. The production designer of this movie turned in some great fucking artwork. And he designed all these very specific zombie types that all kind of had characters. And then a lot of the stuff that William Munns was turning in just it looked like somebody took a bunch of fucking just plastic and just laid it over a face. And they're like, it's, it's a zombie. There you go. So he admits in interviews, it was not his best work. You know, I don't want to disparage anybody, but let's be real. It was the fucking 80s, and it was Hollywood. Everybody was doing cocaine. Cocaine, baby. Yeah. <laughs> like, everybody was just pounding fucking oh, coke. Th- there was a coke energy to this movie. Let's
1: not beat around. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so like, I don't know. I don't know what the deal was. I don't know if he was just overworked, but like I saw the stuff that he turned in and it looked rough. So, I'm not surprised that they fired him off this movie. Again, I
1: liked the Tarman design a lot and maybe that was the puppeteer. Oh, Tarman's great.
0: Tarman is fucking amazing. But Tarman's really and awesome. And I honestly, I said that a second ago, but I can't remember if that was him or Tony Gardner, but I I have a feeling that might be Gardner just because the rest of his work like the torso zombie that they yeah, struck the, one they to the to. Yeah, yeah. table and talk to that was tony gardner a lot of the other general designs were tony gardner like most of the rest of the movie is his work, right, and like I said, I can't remember if Tarman's him or not, but Tarman might be my favorite fucking zombie of all time. It's pretty fucking as far rad. As like a standout yeah. zombie character, Tarman is so fucking good. I'm trying to think if there's a zombie that I liked more in like
1: one of the Resident Evil games. I would have to think about it, but like Tarman definitely is up there for me too. Yeah,
0: and there's some good character zombies in the next few Romero movies that we're gonna watch. But I think Tarman might be my favorite part of it is just the look is so fucking weird and gross. There's not really a gimmick to him. It's not like oh this is the dead chef this is the dead fireman this is the dead ballerina you don't know what Tarman is. What the fuck is Tarman right? He's just this goopy son of a bitch that was in a barrel (laughs) Yeah you don't really know
1: why the government had him in a barrel like exposed to all these chemicals either.
0: Well I mean you do know he was one of the original zombies Oh that's right exposed, yeah. and they put him in there to contain him, but you don't know what his deal was, you know? Kind of going back
1: to the tongue-in-cheek meta nature of this, I totally forgot about that aspect when they, they talk about how the the movie Night of the Living Dead was based off of a real event, but the event that happened
0: there was Yeah. The movie was like a, a cover up. A the cover movie up was like yeah. a fictional version of the real story, yeah.
1: And the real story was it got at like it infected what a hospital or something and Tarman was like one of the leftover zombies from that. And then yeah. they like the military wanted to study or whatever but yeah like tar man also still operates like a zombie even though he's this fucking dripping ghoul he doesn't have like any special powers or anything like that either yeah but his design's so cool his reveal fucking rules because like he comes out of the shadow and like it zooms in on his half skeletal like grease tar face and he says brains and that cements that trope of modern zombie pop culture like I want to eat your brains that's kind of where all these zombies are necessarily flesh eating they just want the live brains of people yeah
0: and it's interesting because the whole idea that they want to eat brains to relieve the pain of being dead yeah the fact that like your brains produce endorphins right which are essentially painkillers to a degree so these zombies are just eating brains to like numb themselves from the pain of living death you know if you are literally a rotting body and you're half fallen apart. Guess what? If you come back to life, it's going to feel like, oh, I'm fucking half fallen apart. Like, whatever trauma you had, you're going to be reliving if you are now reanimated. So, got to have those brains. It almost seems like their necessity
1: for brains killing the people isn't even necessarily something that they want to do. And, like, that's what even the Torso Zombie kind of hints at. It's like, we don't want necessarily the people. We don't, they hint that, like, they're not trying to kill the people, but the only way to get live brains is to do that. Yeah. And it almost it feels like an urge that's as equivalent to, like, blinking or breathing for them. Yeah. Uh, Going to, like, deeper-centered fears. The creepiest moment in this movie to me is when they're talking with the torso zombie, and they, like, ask, like, why? Why do this? Why eat the brains? And it just simply says, being dead is painful. Yep. Really think about that, because, like, it almost implies that even before they were exposed to this chemical reanimating them, what if there was still some, like, weird self-awareness that they had even after death, but they're trapped in their own, like, rotting corpse, just slowly turning into dust. That's fucking terrifying to think about. There have been like recent studies even showing that we are aware for at least for a little while when we're dead, right? And think about how fucking terrifying that is. And and so just that idea of maybe it's not necessarily life after death. Maybe it is still death, but like you're still an awareness of you're rotting away. That's fucking terrifying to think about.
0: Or again, just the idea of you were dead and if you died in some awful fucked up way and you got brought back to life, you are still stuck in that weird, fucked up state. If you died in a car accident and you were completely fucking mangled, and then all of a sudden somebody was like, cool, squirt some juice on you, and now you're back alive again, you're going to just wake up being like, ah, ah, fuck. I mean, that's kind of what Reanimator <laughs> right? explored too, right? Like, exactly. With the fucking cat with the broken back. Yeah. yeah. So, Tarman was sometimes a puppet, Uh, other times it's a guy named Alan Troutman in this costume and man, so much of how and why Tarman works is this guy's performance. Just the weird kind of slinky sliding, side to side, kind of drifty, slouchy like your body is falling apart kind of jaunt that he has is so fucking good.
1: But it's almost cartoonish on purpose childlike, like Like he is like a child puppet, because I remember reading up some stuff about this guy like he works for the Jim Henson company yes he is a puppeteer he's still active he's been active since 1974 still working he just he was a supporting Muppet performer for Muppets and Mansion from last yep. year still working actively and you're right I think he probably really brings life to this character yeah Totally. The rest of the
0: zombies are mostly your general people wearing whatever clothes they were buried in. And then they have kind of gray, green, brown face paint on, you know, bags under the eyes, various wounds and stuff around. But what I like about this movie is that it's not just that. In the crowd scenes, you have that general smattering of people zombies. But again, this movie has Tar Man. This movie has the torso zombie. This movie has weird, specific looks and feels to the zombies, and uh, the production designer specifically was like, yo, EC Comics. Yeah, there's a lot of EC Comics influence yeah, on Yeah, the weird kind of drippy, flappy, discolored zombies that are in those comic books The Guanajuato mummies from Mexico as well was another influence. And these are like your actual desiccated, really kind of shrunken up prunish corpses that influenced them. Which if you look at those real life mummies and and the bog people from Wales, if you look at those real life mummies and then look at torso zombies, 100% that's totally where those came from. The brains, anytime that uh, people were eating brains, those were real calf brains. So these were not any kind of vegan vegetarian friendly brains wow i didn't know that okay and then cool, just the other cool. dumb thing that i saw that was kind of funny was uh the back of Freddy's jacket Freddy, for the most part is not wearing you know he's got like his t-shirt and suspenders on but eventually once he starts getting cold they like put his letterman jacket on and once he goes full zombie he's wearing it the back of the jacket says fuck you. But because they wanted this film to be shown on TV, they literally made a second jacket and filmed alternate takes with that jacket. And the back of that jacket has television version printed on it. Nice. So that's, pretty fucking funny nice. so anyway yeah this movie definitely came together sooner or later and to varying degrees of you know easiness right like this movie seemed to like have all these bumps that it had to overcome and you know it did it right four million dollar budget it grossed over 14 million dollars domestically positive critical reception started a whole spinoff franchise i mean overall this movie was successful even roger ebert gave it a pretty he decent dug it. review yeah. Like, and he fucking hates horror movies, so. Yep. And as far as like immediate legacy, this movie came out a few months before Romero's Day of the Dead, like I mentioned earlier. And that may have contributed to why that movie flopped ultimately, because the Romero movie is bleak as shit. And both audiences and critics were kind of already like, okay, we had our zombie movie for this year. So it's interesting how like, again, both things came out of the same original movie. And, you know, the third entry in the one series and this movie came out at the same time. And it's interesting how they were kind of both received in different ways. Which again, you know, we'll probably revisit a little bit of that once we get today in August. But yeah, like that was something that I found kind of interesting and most people just had no fucking clue that the movies were deeply connected in any of those ways.
1: So another thing too that lends to this movie I feel like would have been a lot of the cult movie status even though but like like that's the thing because it's classified as a cult movie but like feels like there was still a degree of success when it first came out so I don't know if we're just slapping that on to any like movie that has a little bit of transgressiveness to it or not but I do think the one thing that like makes us feel like a movie that would be like sought after by like 12 year olds at a sleepover even is once again we have Linnea Quigley who we have talked about on our past episode Night of the Demons is the main one that we always go back to of shoving the lipstick in the boobie like she gets full butt ass naked in this movie and is pretty naked yep throughout almost every scene she's in to the point where she becomes a naked zombie like seductress kind of when she like goes after the bum the homeless man that she attacks isn't that Dan O'Bannon that is the production designer I believe gotcha but either way like it's interesting to see her in this movie wasn't expecting that I think the last time we saw her was in a uh, Silent Night Deadly Night when yes. she gets impaled on the fucking deer head once again topless she definitely is okay with nudity but it- it feels like her in this movie really takes that transgressive... I I don't know if it's mean-spiritedness, just given the idea, like, how much of a caricature all the punk characters are, but I feel like it would have definitely lended itself to, like, home video for,
0: like, sleepovers when the parents aren't around. Oh, sure, sure. I guarantee you every VHS copy of this that you would ever find at any rental store is gonna have tracking skid marks before that scene from everybody like pausing it. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, like, I mostly remember watching this movie on cable, but the handful of times that I did manage to catch this movie completely unedited, the first time I actually saw that scene, that made me a man. That just, like, instantly, like, I sprouted five inches, I grew hair everywhere, I instantly just transformed into a man watching that fucking scene. I hate to be lewd about it, but that was one of those first moments of, Jesus Christ, this is actual fucking nudity in a movie. Like She's she's
1: considered a scream queen, but I feel like she is considered the sexual awakening scream queen for a lot of people, because just the three movies that we've covered with her in them, Night of the Demons, she is topless in that, has a whole fucking scene where she sticks the lipstick into one a of her... A lipstick
0: bo- into her boob. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. Second movie, Silent Night, Deadly Night, she has a sex scene, gets topless, and gets murdered by him picking her up and sticking her on the deer head. In, in this movie, she's butt ass naked pretty much the entire movie, even when she becomes a zombie. I'm sure we'll come back to her eventually on future episodes in one way or another. Because I remember reading that she's in a lot of splatterhouse type movies. Even I, I know she had yeah. like a bit part in like one of the
0: Nightmare on Elm Streets. She's a sorority babes in slime bol- ball bolorama. No, no, no. You gotta you gotta put the respect on that. It is sorority babes in the slime ball bolorama. <laughs> I could see a certainly covering Nightmare on Elm Street. I could see us covering Innocent Blood, The Giver, The Black Room, Tourist Trap. Like, I could see us doing any of those at the end of the day. Like you said, we've already covered Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Night of the Demons. So, uh, and weirdly enough, like, she's still doing bullshit. Like, Vinegar Syndrome just put out this weird kung fu movie that didn't get finished that they went back and, like, filmed additional scenes for and got a bunch of celebrities to do voiceovers for the characters. So she does voiceovers voiceovers in New York Ninja so yeah she's still working
1: yeah and she's in just a lot of like low budget genre films it seems like
0: yeah now since we are getting lewd and we're talking about the nudity in this so initially when they shot the whole graveyard dance scene with her where she does her striptease initially they were like oh shit we can't actually include this in the movie because she has a lot of pubic hair and so they were like cool we need to take care of this they like sent her to the costumer who kind of trimmed her up a little bit and then they sent her back and they were like oh shit now there's not enough pubic hair oh, going to get God. in trouble for that wow. so then they sent her to the makeup guy who like literally made a weird fucking appliance for her to like wear essentially just a flesh colored merkin that essentially just turns her into a Barbie doll so that was a weird thing that everybody on set was like what the fuck are we doing what are we doing she is a trooper for like not only
1: doing all this but actually seeming like she has a great time being in these weird fucking erotic
0: roles. Oh, well, she straight up has said her dad was a medical doctor, and so the human body was just something that she was not fucking bashful about at all. Even the cast was like, oh no, she would basically just be naked around constantly anyway. You know, most of the time, okay, cool, your scene is done, we're immediately gonna put this robe on you, cover you up, and hustle you away, right? And she would just hang out on set naked, apparently. (laughs) Also, so while we're again in the lewd section of this episode and talking about nudity and shit, Jewel Shepard who plays Casey in this movie uh, she was actually discovered by O'Bannon again this is allegedly, this is according to history she was discovered in a strip club by O'Bannon and he like cast her based off that. O'Bannon is such a weird guy man. <laughs> yeah exactly you know she claims up and down she did not sleep with him, there were no sexual favors exchanged, blah blah blah. And for a second, when I heard that in an interview I was like, okay, that's a little bit weird. Maybe in like a doth protests too much kind of way. But then I like looked up what her background was and yeah, she might have been a stripper at that point in time. She's done basically nothing but 80s sex comedies and actual porn. She was in stuff like Raw Force and Scanner Cop 2, but she was basically in nothing but booby camp nine, joysticks ten. Hot Girl Car Wash, fucking Titty Mall 4, like, just nothing but that kind of bullshit. Right. So I guess that's probably why she was very, like, uh, everything was above board, (laughs) I did not fuck the director for this role, funny enough, I don't actually get naked in this movie or do anything sexual at all, so that was kind of funny to me as well too, uh, and weirdly enough, she's in the cooler, the William H. Macy gambling movie, and The Artist like, Academy Award-winning film, The Artist, as, like, a background actress, supposedly. So, yeah, I guess while we've already talked about them, let's kind of get into the rest of the cast. So, just to kind of quickly look, let's move through the rest of the young cast. So, we also have John Philbin, who plays Chuck. He's kind of the, like, more British mod square-looking guy with the full suit and the trench coat. It
1: was wild to me that they had the mod guy, like, with this group of punk rock and, like, metal heads.
0: Well, yeah, it's, like, the weirdest group of glam mod death skinhead guy like it's the weirdest chunk of every punk type it read like
1: 1980s counterculture tm make that <laughs> and like, yeah this is like how they did it so each one is a different
0: and like i th- joked earlier i guess this is all the punks from louisville and they yeah. just all happen to like be friends together
1: <laughs> yeah and like they're also a little bit antagonistic to each other especially the guy named suicide because they're like well we just hang out with him because he has a car
0: <laughs> yeah so yeah john philbin plays chuck he was in children of the corn The New Kids, Point Brank, Tombstone, lots of TV stuff. Brian Peck plays Scuzz. He's the one with the trench coat and the mohawk. He was in The Last American Virgin. He is also in Return of the Living Dead 2 and 3. He was in Good Burger. He was in a lot of Nickelodeon stuff. Wow, okay. He's in Man on the Moon. He's in weird side roles in X Men 1 and 2. He's the guy that seemed to really fucking enjoy making this movie. He'd done The Last American Virgin before this, and his agent told him not to audition for this because he was kind of the like really straight lay, square, nerdy kind of guy, and those were the roles that his agent was kind of seeking out for him and he was like fuck it i'm gonna go audition anyway and he got the role and you would never think it because he's totally punked up in this movie him and suicide and don Calfa all went to like an actual established punk rock barber in the L.A. area, and that's what his entire thing was, who styled their hair. Yes, I mean, he, like, went full out for the fucking role and enjoyed it and stuck around, and he even plays a zombie in another weird crucial effects scene that they had to film, and it seems like he kind of stuck around and just helped... He also did the voice of the torso zombie on set, so like Don Kalfa had somebody to work off of, and like I said, he appears in 2 and 3, so he seems to have kind of had a fun time actually just making the movie, and he just said, fuck it, I'm gonna stick around. Mark Venturini plays Suicide, he is in Friday the 13th Part 5, New Beginning, which put a pin in that. We're going to get back to Friday the 13th in a minute. But he died of leukemia in 96. Yeah, I read that. That's too bad. He's one of the guys that he would have probably had a much longer career had he not passed away. And everybody on this cast was like, oh, he was a fucking great guy to work with. He was super funny. We all enjoyed him. So that's kind of sad knowing that he could have really probably popped in the the next couple of years. Yeah, because he even had a film come out the year before he passed. Yeah. Beverly Randolph plays Tina. She basically didn't act again until 2015 And even then, like she was in some low-key horror stuff Like No Solicitors and Death House So she just kind of moved on to other things entirely, it appears Miguel Nunez Jr. played Spider Spider is another
1: favorite character of mine in this movie I don't know yeah. how
0: the, all the punks that aren't Freddy He was my favorite Which he is also in Friday the 13th Part 5 The one that doesn't actually have Jason Oops, spoiler alert he plays Demon, and that is one of my fucking favorite characters in any of the Friday the 13th movies. He is fucking ridiculous. He is also, like, a punk rock character in that. But he's mostly, like, trying to get his dick wet and taking massive shits because he had bad burritos and singing songs about it. <sighs> So he is fucking hilarious. I remember looking
1: up his IMDb and like, cause he's still working. Yeah. He was just in like a BET show with fucking
0: Ernie Hudson.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I remember, uh, kind of reading some of his stuff. I remember him being in one of the Leprechaun movies, one of the ridiculous Leprechaun yes. movies. He's in Leprechaun in space. Oh, he's <laughs> in space. Yeah. 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 So like he, he kind of has popped up all over the place. I'm glad he's still around. Cause like I said, I loved him in this movie.
0: Yeah. He was also in Action Jackson, Harlem Nights, Lethal Weapon 3, The Street Fighter movie, Life, Scooby-Doo, Black Dynamite, lots of fucking TV stuff. He was also in an Albert Pune movie, Dangerously Close, which that is going to bring me next to Tom Matthews, who played Freddy. Um, Again, he is the guy who is starting the job at the medical warehouse that we're kind of following, who gets exposed to the gas early. He was in Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, which is one of the better late ones, as Tommy Jarvis, who's kind of the, like, center character for those middle movies. He was also in a lot of Albert Pune movies, so he's in Dangerously Close as well. He's an Alien from L.A., Nemesis, he was just in something called Warpath, which looked like a modern western, and he does the voice of Tommy Jarvis in the Friday the 13th video game that just came out recently. So that's the young cast. And then we kind of talked about the older guys a little bit already. So Don Kalfa plays Ernie. He, of course, is the mortician who is munching on sandwiches and drinking coffee while he's just covered in blood and listening to, like, fucking Wagner. And there's, like, a weird kind of Nazi thing floating through his character a little bit that's weird. Like, he carries a fucking Mauser pistol yeah, on him. And, I noticed that. Yeah, you know, he's got his weird bleach blonde hair and he's listening to wagner like there's that weird strain of him that kind of doesn't really get brought attention to but it's definitely there he is one of those oddball looking guys but he really fucking is hilarious yeah he's in some of robert downey's seniors movies uh he's in putney swope and pound both of which are fucking insane. Not horror at all. Putney Swope is like a giant satire about the marketing and media industries. And Pound is this weird fucking movie about literally a dog pound where there's 12 people that are playing dogs. But it's not like actual dogs, it's just these people as dogs, and he is one of the dogs. And it's like a rated X movie, it's fucking insane. I watched it a couple of years ago, it's ludicrous. He was also in a shit ton of TV stuff, he's in Scorsese's New York, New York, he was in Ten, he was in The Rose. Spielberg's 1941, which is like a big giant weird flop for him. The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Presidio, Weekend at Bernie's. He's in Twin Peaks. He was in necronomicon Book of the Dead, which I have brought up as we go on time. So many fucking people were in that movie. Who was he in Twin Peaks? He's the principal of the school in Twin Peaks. I don't remember that. Okay, yeah, he's only in like one episode. Yeah, James Karen plays Frank, who's the foreman of the chemical warehouse. He was in a shit ton of TV as well going back to the 50s. He's in All the President's Men, Capricorn One, Opening Night, The China Syndrome, The Jazz Singer. He is the boss man in Poltergeist. He is the You moved the headstones, but you didn't move the, <laughs> the bodies. bodies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's in Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars, Wall Street, Congo, one of my favorites. Congo's a good one. Any Given yeah. Sunday... And he's in Mulholland Drive. And then lastly, Clue Gulliger, who plays Bert. Clue Gulliger is one of those guys that, man, he was just a fucking workhorse forever. He was in 40 years worth of TV. He was in a shit ton of old westerns. The Last Picture Show. The Initiation. It's great when I go through somebody's IMDb and they have so many fucking horror movies that I can literally just list out just all the horror movies Clue Gulliger did, right? So, The Initiation. Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Freddy's Revenge. He's the dad in that. From a Whisper to a Scream. The Hidden. Uninvited, which Uninvited is one that we're going to have to do a fucking Giggle Flicks commentary for. That's one where, like, there is a fucking experimental fucking abomination Oh, cat is that
1: the one with the cat? Yeah, yeah, has yeah I've has another seen. smaller <laughs>
0: demon cat yeah. inside of it that comes out of its mouth like the fucking Xenomorph. I
1: remember you telling me about it, but I also remember seeing someone write an article about how ridiculous that movie is.
0: Yes. He is in the Feast trilogy, which one of his sons... That's his whole thing. He was on one of the seasons of Project Greenlight. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was his last role. He is a regular at the New Beverly Theater, which is the theater that Tarantino now owns. Apparently, he is just there every day. He has a seat. It's Clue's seat. Nobody's sitting in Clue's seat, and he's just there every day watching movies. Good on him. He's 93, and he is movies. like He is Hollywood, it seems like. Yep, and he's one of those guys that I remember being really young watching Mystery Science Theater 3000 and there was some janky 80s movie that they were doing and they kept making jokes about oh is this when Clue Gulliger finally shows up wait, this seems like a movie Clue would be in. Where is Clue And they just kept making all these Clue Gulliger jokes, and I never really got it until I was older and realized, like, oh, he was just in a shitload of movies like this, and that's what they're making fun of. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, the cast of this is fucking great. Lots of good people. This cast as a whole is one of the better horror movie casts where everybody gets a couple of moments to shine. The handful of leads that you're really following are all really fucking good. They all bounce off of each other really well. Everybody feels, you know, for the most part, like they kind of stand out and they're all a little bit different. I think my only real criticism would just be, like you were joking about in Girls' Night Out, this is a movie that has a pretty large cast there's seven punker kids but then you really only see like three of them bite it obviously everybody dies at the end yeah. because everybody gets nuked but you're expecting oh there's a lot of these kids there's going to be a lot of fucking fodder and really you only see three of them get killed I really thought the mod was going to bite it I was shocked that he like <laughs> he had made it Yeah, honestly like him Chuck and Casey both seem like complete oh, fucking cannon cannon fodder, fodder yeah. right so that's really my only complaint is there could have been more cool crazy zombie kills in this movie and they're weren't necessarily and then you know it kind of ends with the like deus nuke machina and so they're all just kind of taken out anyway they do treat it kind of darkly comedic they're on the phone and it's all just being put on hold basically yeah well they think they're getting through to somebody and then it's just oh yeah hold on somebody'll be here in just a second and then just you (laughs) know Wait, I think
1: I hear (laughs) something. Oh, shit. Even when they show the other side where the colonel is taking down the notes and go like, "Uh uh-huh, yep, Yeah. uh uh-huh. Well, then what happened? He's just like so bored and just nonchalant about it. Sure. Everything is just treated like, even though they're about to nuke four blocks of Louisville, Kentucky, and probably kill hundreds, if not thousands
0: of people in the process. they said thousands. They definitely said like a few thousand. (laughs) You know, they're
1: just so nonchalant. And then them being on the other end after they survived all this bullshit and they think they're getting help and there you just hear the oh what's that noise and then you don't even see them die they die off screen yeah in the explosion and it honestly felt like a parody of one of the Romero bleak endings to a zombie movie oh totally yeah I'm like you I do think maybe one or two of the other punks should have eaten it but unlike girls night out i felt like everyone was a distinct character i could tell who was who even as many punks as there were they all had their own personalities and looks yeah that like i could tell them all apart i don't know i mean regardless there still is a pretty decent body count because like the zombies keep it's an also another comedic beat of emts and cops just continually arriving and then getting more paramedics (laughs) it becomes a whole line of police cars of just all overrun by zombies yeah
0: that shit's great yeah so Last thing I want to mention real quick. So there are a whole fucking series of sequels that spun off of this movie. I'll be honest. I don't really think we're going to cover any of these. We will maybe, at my insistence, somewhere deep down the line, cover part three, now that we've covered this first one. But uh, man, none of the rest of these are really worth uh, talking about, so we're going to talk about them right now and probably never again. <laughs> so, uh, again, this movie was successful. Pretty quick, they hopped on making a sequel. O'Bannon did not come back for that one at all, it appears. Uh, it was written and directed by Ken Weederhorn, who did shot. Came out in 1988. This one immediately picks up after the first movie, where a barrel of the trioxin that was left over from the first movie busts open in a small town. James Caron and Tom Matthews Both appear in this film again, but as completely different characters. For a while, especially like the first few times that I saw these movies, I got part two and part one kind of mixed up. Because again, both of these guys are showing up, but as different characters entirely. And eventually what I kind of figured out was, oh, part two always has that gauzy, kind of glowy cheesecloth look to it and that's also the one where like they kind of establish that zombies can also be dispatched via electrocution so there's constantly people like getting zapped in the brain and electrocuted and shit because it not only kills the actual physical body but then it neutralizes the trioxin somehow or another dot dot dot. i haven't seen part two in a couple of years and i didn't really bother to rewatch it for this one because honestly it's kind of samey It's just kind of a lot of the same stuff from this first movie, but it doesn't have humor that works, let's put it that way. It has a lot of humor, but it's like, okay, that's not really that funny, and it doesn't have any of the punk angle, it doesn't have any of the, like, kind of smart-ass humor to it as well right so it's just kind of like a weird like bland
1: sequel well and I, I can't imagine especially Tom Matthews Freddy is such a just oh, man, oh geez oh man I'm dying yeah. like kind of energy to the first one which is hilarious whatever role he's in here I don't know like how you would recreate that magic the only thing that I remember looking up about part two that caught my interest was that Dana
0: Ashbrook yes once again Twin it. Peaks fan is like a big role in this one yep so, again, the one that I gravitate toward, that I have always really, really liked, and that movie I'm glad is finally starting to really grow a cult following as well, is Part 3. So Part 3 is the one I know of. You've seen that fucking VHS box your whole life, probably, yeah. At our local blockbuster
1: was always like at the top of the horror section and with it being like oh that's weird it's return of the living dead that's a zombie movie why is there this weird
0: chick with knife nails on the cover yeah Yeah. so this one was called return of the living dead 3 they dropped part from it it came out in 1993 this was directed by brian yuzna we have discussed him previously he was the producer of the original reanimator movie and he would go on to do the sequels to that he directed society he did dagon he's done a bunch of cool shit
1: we'll return to him eventually
0: yeah for sure this movie was filmed in spain during the time that he was working exclusively over there with the i can't remember the name of like it was something factory the like fear factory or whatever they called it fantastic factory the gist of this movie is After Kurt's girlfriend, Julie, they go to check out this military base where his dad works. And, of course, he's experimenting with trioxin. And they see him bring somebody back to life. They get caught. They try to, like, run away and escape. And while they're running, they get in a motorcycle accident and she dies. So Kurt takes her body back to the military base and juices her up with trioxin and brings her back to life. And at first, everything seems fine, but she slowly becomes more and more feral and ravenous as the trioxin kind of slowly eats away at her brain and turns her into a zombie. But she figures out that she can kind of slow it through self-harm. So she is piercing and cutting and inserting everything sharp that she can into herself to the point where, like you said, at the end, she literally is covered in fucking spikes and nails and glass and is just... This giant pin cushion, almost like a fucking Cinnabite, honestly. So she does kind of look Cinnabite-esque, at least the yeah, cover design. Totally. Yeah. Well, she's also gothy as fuck, you know, so she definitely has that Cinnabite kind of look and feel to her, which I, I would bet that's probably where some of this was informed. But that movie ends with a very tragic Romeo Juliet style kind of ending. So it's one that I find to be very interesting. And the romance relationship at the center of it is very different for this kind of movie you know most zombie movies as we're kind of discovering are very much about how society breaks down and how people interact with each other in group settings and you know how sometimes the living people are the more dangerous ones blah blah, blah. and this movie is kind of a completely different all about slowly losing someone that you love and dealing with grief and loss, and, you know, how to deal with somebody that you love who is dealing with addiction or self-harm, right? There's a lot going on in that third movie that's very much worth having a full-blown discussion about eventually. So that's one that we're going to cover. And I know,
1: like, Melinda Clark, who plays Julie in this movie, weirdly enough, because I recognized her, she has kind of, like, one of those that-people actors. But I know she, like, had a big part in the OC. I never watched the OC. But I did randomly watch a little bit, I checked out the first couple episodes of the CW, like, spinoff of the Nikita movies. And yeah. uh, she plays one of the main bad guys in that show. And that's what I kind
0: of remember her from. I think what you're probably remembering is Spawn. Yeah, she's the fucking two Uzi leather corset yeah, Black widow CIA agent,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. God, I forget fucking D.B. Sweeney is in that movie, too, Spawn. Yep,
0: that's a fucking weird movie, man. So, yeah, the next two movies were filmed in Romania and the Ukraine. They were basically filmed back-to-back, edited versions of them, debuted on the Sci-Fi Channel in 2005, which is how I saw them. They was literally like, oh yeah, catch tonight, we're gonna have Return of the Living Dead, part four, and then tomorrow night, Return of the Living Dead, part five. It's like, wait, what? How are you gonna have two fucking movies just come out at the same time, back-to-back like this? Like, what the fuck? That kind of blew my mind at the time. They released Uncharted cut versions of these on DVD in 2007, and now, like, you can't fucking find either of these movies. So, part four was subtitled Necropolis. These are both directed by Ellery LKM. He directed Eight-Legged Freaks, the giant spider movie. Mm -hmm, And these are both linked movies, so this is kind of a part A, part B thing. So, fucking Peter Coyote is in this. He retrieves the last of the trioxin from fucking Chernobyl and starts... (laughs) experimenting at this giant shady corporation that's headquartered in like a giant skyscraper his nephews and their friends so it's like this kind of group of not quite punky teens but you know just like skateboard rad teens they break into this shady lab to rescue one of their friends After that friend got in an accident, skateboarding or some shit, hit his head, busted his head open, and the, like, paramedics that showed up were like, yeah, no problem, we're gonna take your friend to get taken care of, dot, dot, dot. And, of course, they just drag him back to this giant lab skyscraper place to be used as a lab rat. So, the kids all break in to try to rescue him. And, of course, you know, the zombies get busted out, and it's just this entire skyscraper overrun with these medical... Guinea pig zombies. And then the second movie, and this one takes a completely goofy what the fuck turn. This one is titled Rave to the Grave. Oh man. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a year after the last one, and these teens are now in college, and there's a new drug floating around called Z, which is made from trioxin, and if you take too much of it, it will turn you into a zombie. And of course, you know, the drug gets out of hand at a rave. And fucking zombies. So, yeah, those two are just really strange. What the fuck is this? I'm kind of curious to rewatch those, but, like, there's no way to fucking watch those that I found. Even just looking up images from them, I have, like, no fucking desire
1: (laughs) to, like, watch either of those. Oh, they are
0: very sci-fi channel original movie level bad. Yeah. But it's, it's wild. So, yeah, like I said earlier, this series, you know, Return is really the hype point you know it's not like the Romero movies were like okay yeah these continue to kind of be consistently interesting with this series nah you have return and that's kind of about it So, yeah, not super interesting from there. Doubt we will cover really any of these except for probably the third movie. So, yeah, I think that's all I really have as far as this movie and all these series go. So, uh, do you have any final thoughts?
1: Really? This first movie is fucking rock and roll rad as hell? Hell yeah. Uh, Loved it. It's
0: all back to bleakness from here. (laughs) Yep. So, we're going to jump back into the Romero movies in our next episode, we're going to be covering Dawn of the Dead, which is a hugely important movie, and there's going to be a lot of fun shit to talk about. So, yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. If we don't have anything else to uh, discuss, then I guess that's going to be it for this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co host, Derek. As always, you can find us on social media at Watch If You Dare. On Facebook and Twitter, uh, as always, please follow our show on whatever podcatcher you use. There are some five-star reviews on both Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Good Pods as well. As always, thank you to my little brother Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for providing the music bumps, the beginnings, and ends of our episodes. Check his music out on Bandcamp at Party Gator Opossums, Big Clown, any of his other associated acts... Speaking of music, check out our Spotify playlist that we have pinned to our Twitter page. It's just a giant collection of music that is either from movies that we have covered or just stuff that's generally spoopy vibes that are uh, good if you want to kind of get into a horror mood. So that is available. We are constantly adding music to it. I'm sure we will probably dump most of the soundtrack to this movie on there soon. Yeah, I need to get around to doing that. (laughs) Yep. So that's about it. Derek, do you have any last words? I can finally see the one thing, the one thing that will relieve this
1: horrible suffering. What's that, Derek? Alive, Sally! Sally! <laughs>